Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. to Jim Paris Live, your source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right, this hour is all about Theodore Robert Bundy, Ted Bundy, one of the most infamous serial killers in U.S. history. And before we welcome our guest, I want to tell you my own Ted Bundy story. I was 19 years old when I came very close to meeting Ted Bundy. He was in prison at the time, and I was in a Christian music group. And I <laughs> I was convinced to go on this music tour. And so there was uh, a group of us, I think all together, maybe about 15 or 16 of us, uh, singers and musicians. And one of our stops when we were on tour in the, it would have been June of 1984, was the state prison in Stark, Florida, uh, near Stark, Florida, where Ted Bundy was being housed. And I was 19 years old and I was scared to death to go into that prison. I remember uh, they took all of our musical instruments away and they all went through a, a security check. We went I went through two separate uh, areas where the doors closed behind me and then I was searched and checked. Then they moved me to the next zone where I was searched and checked again. And I was brought into this little chapel and we were given our musical instruments back and everything. And um, we were told by our director that there were people in that chapel who were convicted murderers that were serving life sentences. Now, the people who were on death row that were awaiting the death penalty, the electric chair, those individuals were not allowed to come into the chapel. But we were told they were watching us on closed circuit television. Um, there was a, uh, two cameras. I remember uh, two cameras pointing at the stage. And we were told that those cameras were closed circuit and that the prisoners could watch us that were sitting on death row. Uh, I was there playing the trumpet. And little did I know one of those prisoners, uh, Ted Bundy. Uh, I remember them mentioning some of the other names. I was too young to even probably even know who Ted Bundy was. But uh, just an interesting backstory there. I was literally scared to death with, with those security checks and going in with convicted murderers. But we did. And I'm still here alive to talk about it. Our guest this hour, Stephen Mishaw. His book, absolutely fascinating. If you're someone that wants to uh, read a book, that will just captivate you about serial killers. The only living witness, the true story of serial sex killer, Ted Bundy and Stephen Michaud is joining us live. Stephen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jim. I have a question for you. Yes, sir. Can you, re can you remember what music you played for Ted? Uh, well, yeah, we played Christian music. Um, in fact, I, with that, with that group, I played, um, we recorded an album. We, we that June, uh, performed at, I believe, 35 churches all throughout Florida. Wow. And we went to this one prison. Uh, th that prison is where we went. And, uh, I was, I'll never forget it. Yeah. I'll never forget no, it. I've, I've 
I spent a lot of time at that prison, and I know exactly how you feel going through those sally ports. It's like you know the you're going <clears throat> you're going into a world that you really really don't want to uh, uh, be part of, and you're really happy when you finally walk out the door at the end of the day. Yeah, because it's it's a strange feeling, um, you know, sure. when you go when you go in there as 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 I related, because you start thinking to yourself. I'm just visiting this place. It's a prison, but now I'm being imprisoned. You start to get the feeling like maybe there's some weird chance that you're not going to leave there. I, as, as odd as that sounds, I mean, you're, you're not there as a convicted criminal, but you just have this feeling like I'm being locked in these different chambers as I'm moving in, you know, to the prison, the center of the prison. And I'm thinking to myself, is there a chance that maybe I'm not leaving here? I mean, you just kind of have that that weird feeling. Now, in your case, uh, wow, we've got to give you a proper introduction here. You've written 18 books, and I've got to read. I've got to get some of your other books as well. Uh, you know, all about different uh, serial killers and and crime and so forth. Um, and you were able to go behind bars with Ted Bundy, you and your co-author for over it was over a hundred hours of interviews. Is that right? That's correct. Wow. Now, how did that how did that happen? Um, I've already skimmed through your book, so I don't want to uh, I don't want to give you the sense that I haven't prepared. But I've got to ask you these questions as if I don't know. But I understand that your um, your publisher gets a phone call or contact from someone representing Bundy saying that he's willing to have you come in and interview him. Uh, how would he know who you were and how do you think that you were selected uh, to get that interview? I mean, what a what an interview opportunity. I'd say, um, well, it's the late 1970s and I was at uh, uh, Business Week magazine. I was an editor there in New York and I got a call one day from my agent and she said, do you know who this guy Ted Bundy is? And I had a vague idea. I wasn't, you know, serial killers weren't exactly my specialty at that point. And she said, well, he knew somebody, that is, he, Bundy, knew a reporter in Seattle, where he came from, who was married to a sports agent who was a friend of her husband, who was a lawyer in L.A., and through all these people, this project had come to her desk. And she said, are you interested in, in killers? And I said, <laughs> <laughs> and I said, not as a, you know, not as a daily habit, but, you know, and let's talk. And so this, what she laid out to me was that Bundy had, had, had reached out, not to me, but through a, you know, this kind of chain of people saying that, you know, he, may have may have been you know, ready to go on trial for his life in Florida, but he was in fact an innocent man and that he had been the victim of this monstrous, uh, not right wing, but just general conspiracy, and uh, that he wanted to tell his story to a reliable, um, a reliable uh, uh, journalist. And uh, in return for telling me or whoever it turned out to be, what the real story was uh, that he wanted his cases all reinvestigated. So I recruited a colleague of mine named Hugh Ainsworth, and I said, Hugh, if you go back out to the West Coast and go look at all these cases, 
I'll go talk to Bundy and we'll see what we've got. And that's how the whole project started. Wow. So this started with his idea that somehow you were going to help to clear his name. Well, that was his story. Uh, right. It turned out that he knew damn well that that was not going to happen. But he, you know, Ted saw himself as sort of a celebrity. Uh, he didn't see himself as just a, a criminal who was behind bars and deserving of whatever the justice system came up with him, came up with. He, Ted really was, was, uh, uh, he was very in, deeply into himself and he had, he had a great deal of contempt, not only for the justice system and police, but also for journalists. And since I was a journalist, I, I fell into that group and he was quite certain that he could certainly jack me around um, and get me to do whatever he wanted me to do. So were the initial were the initial uh, interviews uh, him claiming his innocence? Uh, Did that? How? how, So. So so that was how it began. And then your your partner came up with the interesting idea of suggesting that Bundy describe the crimes uh, as a third person might describe them. And uh, we'll pick it up from there when we come back from this break. We're talking about Ted Bundy tonight on Jim Paris Live. We'll be right back. Listening to Jim Paris Live. My guest this hour, Stephen Mishaw, and I want to give you the spelling of that so you can find him on Amazon. His name is Stephen, S T E P H E N. The last name is spelled M I C H A U D. Mishaw is a pronunciation. That's what my producer tells me. Uh, Stephen, do I have that pronunciation right? You're pretty close. It's more like me show, but uh, I certainly I answer to everything. So that's fine. me show. OK, right. but it's spelled M-I-C-H-A-U-D. Now, can you tell me the difference uh, between the two books that I see about Bundy? One of them, The Only Living Witness, the other one, Ted Bundy Conversations with a Killer. Are those books similar? Uh, what are the differences? is a book we my uh, co-author Hugh Ainsworth and I published uh, in 1983 and it's a basically our biography of Ted based on principally on our prison interviews with him the only uh, I'm sorry uh, conversations with a killer was published in 1989 just after Bundy's execution uh, and the idea was that we hadn't we had so much interview uh, stuff with Ted that we could not use in the first book that we we simply put together all our interviews in a, a long, basically a long book length question and answer interview with Ted so that people could, uh, as close as possible, uh, uh, follow us along through our conversations with Ted so you, they could see word by word and, and, and interview by interview, how it all went. Okay. So the analogy would be, uh, you're covering a trial and you're sort of giving your take on the trial, but then you make available the transcript of the trial 
for someone that wants to actually get into the details of it. So those are so you you could buy both books. Uh, you should buy both books if you're interested in this topic. And I wanted to fill in one blank for you. I know one, one question my producer said was uh, you had asked, why why would a Christian money show want to talk about Ted Bundy? We talk about a lot of different conspiracy theories, all kinds of different news topics. But I teach women self-defense and I teach oh. a 12 hour course. And the first uh, the first thing I do after saying, hello, my name is Jim Paris. Welcome to my course is I have them all sit in the room and we watch a 45 minute documentary about Ted Bundy. And really? um, uh, absolutely. And uh, yeah. the, the, the purpose of that is to really uh, scare the uh, H.E. double toothpicks out of them, uh, because yeah. I want them to know. Uh, how you, you can become a victim of a crime like this and how many of uh, Bundy's uh, victims were willing, willing, they willingly went with him and there were no, there was no evidence, no sign of a struggle. There were no screams because none of that happened. They, they willingly were tricked into going with him. And so I show them this uh, documentary and uh, we actually have them writing notes like wh what's going on and watch this and write this stuff down. Wh what do you think people are the mistakes people are making? And it's a fascinating discussion that takes place after we show that video. So that's my my personal interest in it. I have an organization called CampusSelfDefense.com where we teach uh, women's self-defense. I'm a second degree black belt and also a certified women's self-defense instructor. So that's that's where my Ted Bundy interest, uh, you know, came in because I thought, what better way to teach self-defense than to teach it from the real crime standpoint? In fact, I'm working on a book right now, which is um, all about women's self-defense, and I'm actually going to use the real crimes of Ted Bundy in this book to actually teach the strategies of self-defense, like like what right. did Bundy yeah. do and what yeah. should you do as a woman in this similar type of a situation? And the one story I love is the one woman that was able to get away from him. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, and, and she was the one that got away. Um, but let me ask you, I, I, I want to uh, ask you, really, what is that like when you tell describe where you meet with Bundy when you go into the prison? Um, obviously you go into the secure inner area of the prison. Tell right. us what's, what that looks like. Do you have any pictures of that or that was probably not allowed? No, I, uh, uh so tell us about I, the room and is Bundy chained up? Is he drinking a cup of coffee? Describe that scene to me. That's fascinating. Well, You'll remember that you go into the prison through series of series of gates, and there's that there's the big fences, and then there's the the, the razor wire over it, and there there used to be dogs that roamed around the, the periphery of the prison, but they they got rid of them after a, uh, a successful escape when several prisoners cut through the fences and took off, and the dogs went with them. <laughs> um, so, man's so, best friend right yeah right well those those men's uh, best friends so anyway you you go through what they call a sally port where you go through one door and then the door locks and then you go through another door and the door locks and they you know you have to get rid of all the metal in your and you know uh that you have but it's a lot lot more sensitive obviously than a than say at an airport um, oh yeah 
I remember and, we had to uh, almost like, take our some of our clothes off. We had to like no jackets, like our we had to take belts off, shoes yep. off. Um, I think yep. some of those people had to take socks off because they couldn't, you know, go through that way. It was it was incredible. And and I remember two different small chambers that we had yeah. to go through before we got into the actual prison itself. So that was the, the same experience you had. So, so you're brought it, are you, are you brought into like a prison cell or are you in like a conference room? What, what does that look like? Well, uh, you're never alone, obviously in the prison, there's always a guard escorting you. And so after you, uh, yeah, I went through all of that and I would say hello to the assistant warden and all that go down the long, long hallway that, Kind of resembled a hallway from a, if you went to a public high school, you would remember where it's kind of low and wide and there are no, there are no, uh, 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 there's nothing on the sides, but it's all polished and it's, you just walk along and then you get to what in those days was called central, uh, the central part of the prison. And, uh, they would bring the prisoners who were coming out to talk to their lawyers and, and other people and put them in a, um, a holding pen. And the first, I remember very well, the first day I arrived, uh, Ted was in this pen with two or three other guys. And it was a, it's just a, um, it's, there's really not much to be said about it. It's just a wire, uh, wire pen. And then I was shown into an interview room, which is completely in the interior part of the prison. And it had windows in it and a table and a couple of chairs and some ashtrays. And so they could, they could monitor us all the way through our conversation, obviously. And then he was brought in and he was, he had on a belly chain and handcuffs and they, uh, they would un- uncuff him and they would take off the belly chain. So Ted and I were together in this room. And he had no restraints on him whatsoever. He was wearing a kind of peach-colored shirt, T-shirt or, or sweatshirt, which uh, identified him as a death row inmate. And yeah, I re- we- yeah, that I remember seeing pictures of that uh, yeah. also on, in the news. That that picture. All right, we've got a break coming up. When we come back, more about what it was like to be behind bars with Ted Bundy. Our guest, Stephen Michaud. We'll be right back. We're listening to Jim Paris live. We are live on Sunday nights. Our guest this hour, Stephen Michaud, the book, The Only Living Witness, the true story of serial sex killer Ted Bundy. And before the break, we were talking about the imagery of uh, what that looked like. Uh, You're brought into the prison. You go through all the security. You're now sitting down. With Ted Bundy, they take the chains off of him. He's wearing the pink uh, colored jumpsuit, which signifies he's a death row inmate. Is this a privilege that death row inmates are given? Can they just ask for a reporter? Maybe they want uh, Barbara Walters to come in and, and talk to them about how they feel about things or whatever their motivation is. How does that happen that a prisoner gets to uh, invite uh, a journalist in for an interview like this? Well, Jim, uh, let me disclose for the first time publicly that I went to the prison under a little bit of a subterfuge. Uh, I had arranged 
to get myself a public a public, uh, public investigator, private investigator license. And I went into the prison with a little bit of help from some people that I really can't mention as Ted Bundy's uh, investigator for his appeals. So wow. uh, as, far, as far as the prison knew, I was a, a private investigator and not a journalist. And I can tell you, that in the six months that I spent with Ted, I had some pretty sweaty moments because I would from time to time think, well, they're going to figure out what I'm doing here pretty soon, and I'm going to be invited to spend the night. So, uh, <laughs> wow. So so what you just disclosed to us, that you were in that prison under false pretenses, that was is that's not disclosed in either of your, either of your books? No, no, it wasn't something that I wanted to rub their noses in. Uh, wow. I was, I was, I was, uh, uh, I was informed after the book was published that I should probably not spend any lengthy period of time in the state of Florida, and especially not get arrested for anything because I, I might have an unpleasant experience. Um, I tried to, you know, I mean, I, you know, I, I had to. Well, anyway, it was. It, the, the 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 important thing here is that I was not what I said I was, and they were not happy with me when they found out about it. Let's put it wow. that way. Yeah, because I, I I was wondering about that because I do remember um, was it uh, Doctor James Dobson got yep. to actually do an interview, quote unquote, and it was a really big deal, but it was only like a few minutes in length, and the idea that you were a hundred hours behind bars. Um, seemed hard to, hard to, to fathom, uh, you know, obviously, uh, being with Ted Bundy, you know, that long now, um, I understand that your partner came up with the brilliant idea at some point in those interviews to present to Bundy, who still said he was innocent, um, which by the way, did he know that you were not an investigative, um, that you were not a private investigator? Oh, sure. Absolutely. I mean, so he knew. So yeah, he was no, in on was, he was in on your yeah. secret, but the prison was not. Now, at some point to try to get him off of the the position that he was innocent and you guys were just going to sit there and listen to the lie after lie after lie. Uh, your writing partner, Hugh Ainsworth, came up with the idea to let to, to give Bundy the idea that he could discuss the crimes um, in sort of a, a third person way, almost like, yeah. Hey, well, yeah. if you, if you were to do this, you know, tell us what that might look like if someone actually did do this and let him kind of almost have creative license. And that gave him, you felt like the freedom to then start telling you what really happened. Well, the way it worked was this, Jim, I, you know, I was, Ted was very frustrating because, we got started, and you know the 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 alleged uh, program was that he was going to tell me, you know, the the inside details of his whole uh, non-criminal career, while he was out on the West Coast proving that Ted could not have done any of these crimes. I mean, that was the that was the allegedly what we were all after. It was pretty clear early in this project that Ted was not innocent. And the question really was how guilty he was. Um, but I could not penetrate the sense that he had that I was just there to tell interesting stories about when he was a kid and he had a dog named Lassie and that 
He later, you know, had stories when he had been arrested and people that he had known, he thought of himself as a celebrity. And uh, I was not interested in that part of the, the deal. And so I, one night I had a long conversation with Hugh on the telephone and I said, look, let's, you know, if you agree, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to give Ted the chance to talk about himself in the third person. And I said the the my the one insight I've got this guy at these you know these first interviews is that he really is he's not just boyish as the press always said he was but he really was a boy uh, he was in his twenties at this point but emotionally and intellectually he was twelve years old I thought and I reasoned further from that that if you're going to get a 12-year-old to tell you the truth about what he or she has done, one of the, the, one of the strategies is not to confront the child, but to give the child a chance to talk about him or herself without saying, I did it. And the example that I always use is you're sitting in your living room and a baseball comes through the living, the living room window and you look out the door and there's Jimmy or Johnny with a baseball bat and you say, did you just throw that or hit that ball through my window? And like likely as not, he'll say, no, of course not. And But if you say, could you tell me how you think that ball might have come through my window? Then possibly he will say, yeah, I think maybe somebody hit it. And that was that was the, the theory. So I, I, I with Hughes' uh, uh, agreement, I went in the next morning and I basically did this with Ted. I said, you know, you're a really, really smart guy. You have a degree in psychology. You've been a uh, 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 defendant in all of these cases. You've seen all of the, the, the reports. You, you know, you know more about these cases, obviously, than anybody. So why don't you tell me what you think happened? Put it together. Tell me what you think happened. And Ted grabbed the uh, tape recorder from me and kind of curled himself around it like a big snake and lit a cigarette and uh, off he went. And I, that's, that's how it all started. Wow. And it turned, did it turn out that most of what he had to say or, or all of what he had to say was corroborated later uh, to be the truth? Uh, do you feel that most of what he had to tell you at, after that point in time was truthful? Well, we were really careful. We went to every after after the review, the interviews were over. With we went to psychiatrists, we went to cops, we went to all these people before we ever published the book. Um, and then after the book was published, um, you know, more stuff came forward, uh, including the interviews he gave, you know, the night before he was executed in 1989, and it was all uh, completely consistent. And, wow. uh, and yeah, and, and the sort of the interesting part is that we started a little bit of a fashion in third person interviewing. I mean, people went in and started interviewing Ted after us in the third person and interviewing other guys. It became for a couple of decades. I don't even know. I don't know if it's still going on anymore, but it became a technique for getting serial killers to finally kind of get, you know, get beyond denying everything. And starting to talk about themselves. 
and kind of putting them in the position of like solving their own crimes. But, you know, by removing them from that and not making it personal, uh, sort of taking away their defense. Now, Ted Bundy actually did wear that hat and uh, was in that role when he helped supposedly, according to stories I've read, to solve the Green River murders. And we'll talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. When we come back from this break, we'll talk about that in our final segment with our guest, Stephen Michaud, the only living witness, the true story of serial sex killer, Ted Bundy. We will be right back. You are listening to Jim Paris Live. Stephen Michaud. We're talking about serial killer Ted Bundy, and we're transitioning here to talk about Gary Leon Ridgway, also known as the Green River Killer. And I found it absolutely fascinating, Stephen, that some of the law enforcement individuals involved in investigating the Green River murders, the so-called Green River Task Force, that uh, two members of the law enforcement uh, task force there uh, were actually they they go to Ted Bundy as an expert on serial killers and Ridgeway uh, has been convicted of forty nine separate murders but later confessed to twice that amount making him uh, far more prolific killer than Bundy as far as we know was yeah. the was the Ridgeway case brought to him after your interviews with Bundy or was that before the yeah the, the Ridgeway killings the the, the the first ones that later became what were known as the Green River killings actually occurred right at the time that our Bundy book was being published in 1983 um, so about a year and a half or two years later, Ted invited uh, a detective from the state of Washington called Bob Keppel, who had been an original investigator in Ted's cases. He said, come on down to Florida, and I will talk to you about the Green River Killer. Nobody knew his name was Ridgeway at that point. And so, uh, as you said, uh, Keppel... And another detective uh, went down to the Florida State Prison and conducted the first of of three interviews with Ted that were basically focused on the Green River killings and and what Ted thought he could bring to the investigation without ever saying that he was a serial killer, but everybody at the table knew exactly what he was talking about. And Ted started giving them advice about how do you catch a serial killer. I'll add here that I believe they they met in exactly the same room where uh, I and then uh, Hugh and I had interviewed Ted years before. It was kind of a rerun. And let me let me jump in and 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 make an observation: agree or disagree? I think you groomed Ted Bundy for that type of an interaction. In other words, your tactic of making him a quote-unquote expert third party to his own crimes gave him the idea that he was now uh, sort of this this crime-solving genius 
And that that continued on. Now you were gone. Your book was being published. And he then almost plays that same role with these two law enforcement officers. Is that fair? I think you're right. Um, I, I don't want to take too much credit for this because uh, I think what it was is I, I had a I was in a desperate situation. All I was getting it was a bunch of hoorah from Ted. And I needed the real deal. And so I invented a way of talking to him. And I had no way if that was going to, I, I did not know if it was going to work. It did. And we got a lot out of it. Um, but going forward, it turned out to be something that, that, that Bundy found really congenial. And, and I, and, and I think the key here is like a lot of serial killers, he was, deeply narcissistic he was really into himself and he was in fact really quite proud of all the murders that he had had uh uh committed and so he really wanted to talk about them he really wanted to in in essence brag about them and uh and you know for better or for worse i turned the tap on and it kept flowing until right up to the 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 day before he was executed when the governor of Florida said, well, Ted, that's all great, but, uh, you know, it's long past the time that just because you want to talk about your killing, that we want to let you keep talking about them. And that was now, the end. Now, in, in the end, did Ted Bundy provide any real help in catching Gary Ridgway? No, no. Uh, he I think he I think he really educated Bob. Uh, uh, about serial murder. I think it was really a useful exercise in that regard. But no, because Ridgeway was caught really according to, a, you know, basically it was, a, it was just luck. That's the way most of these guys are caught. Um, but I will say that Ted certainly provided really interesting insights into how Ridgeway thought. And, um, and those have enduring uh, value for police officers, detectives who today still are, are faced with serial killers. I mean, they have not gone away just because Ted was executed and a lot of the famous ones are now gone does not mean that there are not serial killers out there. Oh yeah. And no one's connected the dots yet. And, and, you know, we just have, I mean, we have people, hundreds of thousands of people disappear every year and nobody knows what happens to them. So, so when I'm reading this uh, here from, from Wikipedia, I think one of the things that it turned out in the, uh, in the interviews that Robert Keppel and Dave Reichert did with Bundy about Gary Ridgway he, um, he seemed to go in the direction of kind of assuming Ridgeway was just like him. For example, he told them to go back to where the bodies were buried uh, to, to yep. stake out those locations because it would be likely that Ridgeway would go back to the dead bodies. Now, that's that was what Bundy did, but that wouldn't be correct to say all serial killers go back to the dead body, like in Bundy's case, to have sex to take parts of the body that would vary i would imagine from one serial killer to the next so it seemed like bundy was was trying to portray ridgeway as being like himself is that fair oh you're absolutely right bundy was reasoning from his own experience and that was why bob was there talking to him bob was not keppel was not really interested no i won't say that 
if 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 Ted would have had insights into the then Green River Killer, uh, Detective Bob Keppel was certainly interested in listening to them. But Bob really knew that Ted was going to be talking about himself, and that's what he was really there to listen. Okay, to. fascinating. So so Bundy thinks he's there as the expert. And he's schooling the police officers right. and the police officers are are kind of sizing him up, listening to what he's saying, uh, realizing what it is uh, for what it is. And you and he and they're going to school on his narcissism, his lying, yeah. his own story. Uh, fascinating, fascinating to think of the layers of uh, sort of a three layers of chess going on there uh, in that interview room. Uh, very, very interesting. Now, we're getting close to the end, and I wanted to ask you this, uh, sort of a big question we hit a lot of our guests with. Uh, you might not have an answer for it. Was there one thing about your interview, about your interaction with Ted Bundy? Is there one thing that you would say just really stood out as surprising to you sort of the most memorable thing about it. Is there a one thing that you could oh, there is. share with us? There is. Yeah, there is, Jim. Fairly early on when we started talking in the third person, I you know, interviewing Ted was a little bit like viewing a shark on the other on the other side of a piece of uh, of glass. Uh is that you know he would swim by and I could see his teeth, but I wasn't afraid of him. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I remember that at one point, I finally got him to talk for the first time about one of the murders that we both knew he was, he was involved with. And he, he grabbed, again, he grabbed the tape recorder and started talking. And I know this sounds a little bit goofy, but under his right eye, I saw this white line start to 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 develop. It, it was a little bit like I mean, I don't know I don't know how to describe this, but it was like a, a lash mark or whatever. It had nothing to do with the character, or the contour of his face. It just was this white line, like a a scar, and it stood out, and it really got very it got really distinctive. Uh, as he was talking about what he did to the girl and what he did afterwards. And then he finally stopped and he looked up at me. This is the first time we, our eyes had actually uh, locked together for like 15 minutes. And he was exhausted. He was, he was sweating. Wow. So that was, smoking. as we would say in poker, that was his tell, that distinct it was, uh, it, look it on was his face. His tell, and it, it, was, it was the most amazing moment. Oh, wow. Shocking. Said. Shocking. I have chills. I have chills hearing that. Stephen Michaud, fascinating interview. Get his books all about Ted Bundy on Amazon.com. We'll be back next week. Jim Paris Live. Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan.
listening to Jim Paris Live, your source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right. Welcome to hour number two of the broadcast. As usual, we bring to you a fascinating guest, and for the hour, he will be with us. His name is Kevin Sullivan, and he's written three books about Ted Bundy. This book is called The Bundy Secrets, Hidden Files on America's Worst Serial Killer. And Kevin Sullivan, I understand, too, from your biography that uh, you're a fellow Christian. You're also a pastor. You're you're a pastor. You've got a counseling ministry, uh, yes. and now you're and and you're writing these books about Ted Bundy. Uh, so <laughs> uh, people probably wonder, like, what, what what's going on with this guy? Yes. I'm fa- I'm personally fascinated <laughs> with Ted Ted Bundy myself. Then the reason for me is is this: I teach women self defense. Uh-huh. And one of the things that happens in these self-defense classes is I get th- this sort of naive look when I start telling mm-hmm. them about scenarios where they could be lured into a car or lured, right. you know, into an unsafe situation. And they look at me like, yeah, really, someone's really going mm-hmm. to convince me to do that. And mm-hmm. that's why I started recently showing a Ted Bundy documentary at the beginning mm-hmm. of my my workshops for these women. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. And some of them are driven to tears. Others look like they're about to throw up after seeing mm-hmm. this. And mm-hmm. I think that's all a good thing for them to mm-hmm. know that there are people like this guy, Ted sure. Bundy, sure. walking the streets who have what I call a 10th degree black belt in being evil. And I'm a third degree yep. black belt. I train women who are black belts and higher in street mm-hmm. self-defense. And good. It, it's it's hard for people to believe that someone can be this evil. So let's start mm-hmm. with with you. Why sure. is a pastor, a counselor, why are you so interested mm-hmm. in Ted Bundy writing now a third book about this guy? Well, very interesting. I like to say, too, that I, I have something I like to say that is very true. Most of us lead normal lives. I like to say that everything is normal until it's not. And that's what can happen sometimes when you're talking about crime and society. And some people put themselves at higher risk than others, but terrible things can happen by just sometimes being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, I never intended to to actually, you know, write about Ted Bundy. I have been a minister for uh, over 30 years. I've spent most of my adult life in the ministry. I uh, uh, have been a Christian for 40 when I, when I was 10 years old, though, I read a, the first adult book I read was a book I took off my dad's uh, library shelf. It was called The World's Worst Murderers by a man named Charles Franklin. It was out of England, and um, I was fascinated by it. That was a heavy and topic I, for a 10-year-old. I'm surprised da- Dad didn't take that away from you. You Today, well, we wouldn't let a yeah. 10-year-old read a book like that. <laughs> no, no. And... Uh, he didn't, I don't think he knew I read it until after I was finished with it, but I would occasionally have to ask my mother uh, how to pronounce certain words. But, uh, you know, I, that started an interest, but it wasn't just there as I, as I uh, you know, grew in years and there was an interest about conflict and war and other cataclysmic events. And uh, But I, as I say, I spent most of my life in the ministry, and I am a Christian. And, but, I, but I had what I call the writing bug hit me. And, uh, 
my first book was published. It was a personality study on George Armstrong Custer, and that came out in uh, December of 1995. And I thought, well, I'll just write this book. I can get this writing stuff out of my system, and then that would be it. But that wasn't it, and one thing led to another. So I was basically conducting the ministry along with my writing, and I ended up writing about true crime. I'm primarily known as a true crime writer. And with the book that put me on, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was my breakout book, was my first book on Ted Bundy, and that was called The Bundy Murders, A Comprehensive History. I and have I it on my bookshelf. Book. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you, it's oh, you do? Oh. all I do. It, it is, I bring it to my yeah. women's self-defense workshops, and I yeah. show them Exhibit A. Here you are. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, uh, then, then you know that that all happened by chance. Uh, a, a, a good friend of mine who is now deceased, his name was uh, Jim uh, Massey. He was good friends with the lead detective in the Bundy case in Utah, and 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 that man was his name was Jerry Thompson. And I had known for years that Jerry had Ted Bundy's murder kit uh, because that's where Bundy Bundy was brought out of the shadows. And that's that's where he was arrested, and, and it came to light that he was the killer of the women from the Northwest and Utah and Colorado and Idaho and all that. So he's had that. Uh, the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office had it after Buddy was executed in Florida in 1989. Uh, Jim, when you say uh, the murder uh, kit, are you talking about the duct tape and the handcuffs and all of that stuff? Everything. Yeah. In fact, it, it, yeah. If, if you look in the book, there's a there's a picture from the police department. In 1975, but there's also a picture of the murder kit on my dining room table. Because wow. when Jerry Thompson came to Louisville uh, back in 2005, we didn't know he was bringing it. But Jim, my friend, said, "Listen, I'm I'm, I'm going to have dinner with Jerry and his wife there, and because they'll be in town at such and such a date, we'd like to have dinner." I said, "Yes." Turns out he brought the murder kit with him, turned it over to Jim for a couple of days, and I got to bring it to uh, the house here, our house, and I called my wife. And I said, honey, if there's anything on the dining room table, just move it. I'm bringing Ted Bundy's murder kit into the house. I need to take photographs. She was less than pleased that it was coming into the house. But anyway, but I, I took photographs of it. And before Jerry left two days later, he gave me and he gave Jim one of the uh, glad bags, big trash bags that Bundy carried in his vehicle. And he would use these bags to put the women's clothes in, and he would discard those away from the body. He would always leave a body nude. No clothes. The only thing they might have a beaded necklace, but that would be it. And it was so surreal meeting Jerry and having that bag that I said to myself, I'm going to write a book about this guy. And I immediately had people say, yeah, you, you, know, you don't really need to do that. Uh, Bundy's been done to death. But I said, no, I, I went with that which I had on the inside of me. And it's a good thing I did because halfway through the book, I was starting to uncover new verifiable and never before published information about four of the murders and a lot of new information about the case in general. And I knew once I was halfway through the book that that, that it, it, I knew I could write a good book on Bundy. I, I knew I could at least do that. I didn't know that it would be set apart in the ways that it ended up being set apart. And so I was very pleased with that. And, uh, but that, that's, that's the only reason I, that I wrote about Ted Bundy. And in fact, I had written an article for a magazine, a newspaper, a weekly print newspaper that started here in Louisville called Snitch. And it was uh, in five or six states at one time by 2005. I think it was just in uh, Louisville and Lexington, Kentucky. And I think North, Carol North Carolina, I think, was running it. But 
I wrote an article for Snitch about meeting Thompson, and I, I, I titled it Three Days with, with you know, Ted Bundy, and it, all, all about the murder kit. And I thought, well, that, that, that's enough. But when I decided to write the book, I got on this journey. It, 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 took, it took a couple of years, maybe two, two and a half years. And it just, it just took off from there. I never thought I'd write another book about Ted. But in 2015, I did a companion volume called uh, The Trail of Ted Bundy, Digging Up the Untold Stories. And again, I uncovered a lot of new testimony from people that had never been. And it is before. interesting uh, what, what you yeah. probably have yeah. found. What you probably uh-huh. have found is what I have found. We had Stephen Michaud on the on the show. And uh-huh. it's one of our biggest downloaded shows of all the shows we've ever done that yeah. that Ted Bundy, even in death, has a tremendous following of people that are just interested in the case and interested yeah. in the inner workings of the mind of this serial killer. We're going to take Absolutely. a break when we come back more about the Ted Bundy murders with author Kevin Sullivan. Fascinating, fascinating discussion. We'll be right back. We're listening to Jim Paris live. We are back. We're talking about Ted Bundy, who I believe in, and our guest Kevin Sullivan believes is America's worst serial killer. And uh, interesting, I mentioned this when Stephen Mashab was with us that as a, mm-hmm. a young person, uh, when I was in college, so this would have been back in uh, 1984. I actually was in a music group that performed in the prison in Florida where Ted Bundy was. And, no, and the, yeah. And so the, the, the prisoners on death row were able to see us on closed circuit television. So that, so I was that close, you know, to Ted Bundy being yep. right there. Sure I remember go, being in, in, in that prison. I, 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 I researched mm-hmm. it to make sure it was the prison, but it was stark, Florida, uh, I believe is where we were. And, and, and we Mm -hmm, were told that he was there, uh, Mm -hmm. which was sort of a chilling thing. But, uh, one of the things, one of the things I say to my students in my women's self-defense class is Mm -hmm. it's sort of like a mathematical calculation. There is Mm -hmm. your, your will to not be abducted up against the will of the bad guy to abduct you and 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 it's simple math either your will will be greater or their will right. will be greater and you will either be abducted or not abducted uh mm-hmm. ted bundy was a guy would you say uh of just an extreme commitment uh and will to taking these young women including uh very creative plans fake yeah. fake casts crutches all yeah. kinds of stories tell us about that well, Bundy, especially uh, when he began the murders in, in the Northwest, in the Seattle area, he was exceedingly good at murder. He was a expert planner. Now, he was on home territory, so he always had plenty of time to pick out those areas where he wanted to have you know body dumps, and they were two in Washington State. But he, 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 he planned very well for murder, and um, it, he appears at the time to never leave anything to chance. At the same time, he was an exceedingly bold killer. And if you look at the uh, sometimes the type of abductions he did, for instance, uh, the abduction of Linda Ann Healy out of a house um, in the university district, um, and she lived there with with uh, four other women, and he crept down in the basement and uh, 
he took her out of that basement. He choked her into unconsciousness. Uh, he checked this out. There was a woman. Uh, there were two rooms down there separated by a partition of, of you know, plywood. So he had, he had to be quiet. He choked her into unconsciousness. She, she had a nosebleed from it. It, it, it ran down the back of her nightgown. He, uh, took her off the bed. He, he, he hung the nightgown up in the closet. He made the bed perfectly, something that Linda did not do, at least during the week. Uh, and, um, he grabbed, uh, like a, a backpack and some clothes, carried her up the steps. And I've, I've been to this house. There's only two ways you can go. You go up the steps from the basement, which is, comes up on the side. You can either go to the rear. He could have parked his VW in the alley, but if he did, he would have effectively blocked it because it's very narrow and a lot of people could have seen him. Or he walked down the steep steps down the front. And this is not the kind of thing, if you're an abductor, you think you, sh- you, you should do because at, at, even at that hour, there could be people out there. But he was very bold as a killer and he's very unusual and he was very smart. And so when we look at him in retrospect and we see there, there's such a disconnect in the minds of most people, those that knew Bundy would have their own epiphanies as time rolled on as to his guilt. And it hit people at different times, but. And he was the, uh, the stereotypical sociopath. So people that yeah. like work with him thought he was this wonderful, gregarious, outgoing guy. Whilst sure. at night he was out killing women, murdering, raping, torturing them. Yes. Yes. And, and that, that, uh, I do make a distinction that in, in, in the Northwest and even when he was in Utah and then branching out to Colorado and Idaho, he was an, a really, really uh, serious killer, and he he tried not to leave any clues. Now, by the time he had his descent, I call, I, I actually like to call it, and he ended up in Florida after he escaped Colorado. He was a far different killer down there. He was uh, physically unkempt a lot. He uh, didn't care so much about uh, you know what he did. He was more of a not a planner of murder, but an opportunistic. You know, he was still bold, so he, though, in the in like going into yes. that uh, that frat house uh, yes. uh, at the college here, and and the, you know, cl- yeah, clearly could have been caught there with as many women as could have been around, and and it so seems sure. interesting how he would take those bold moves, and then you sort of juxtapose that with sort of targeting people individually with one of his fake cast stories or whatnot to get them in his car, right. Well, I, it was so, it was so, it was so, uh, bad for, for these ladies up, up in the Northwest that even when they knew women were disappearing, they couldn't, when they ran into Ted Bundy and he asked for a favor and he was hobbling on crutches or something else was going on, he was articulate, he was handsome, he was nice, he was friendly, he was smiling. They, in the back of their minds, they knew these women were disappearing, but they, they did not make the connection between a man like that and the person that was out there doing these terrible things. It just didn't seem like that it could be him. And he doesn't course, look like the uh, what you would consider, no. like when we teach kids about stranger danger, one of the things that are right. important to tell them is it's not someone with a big black hat and a twirly mustache like you see in your cartoons. It could just be a normal-looking uh, person. Now, right. with, with, with Ted Bundy, how many times was he actually held by the police? Because I know, wasn't there at least one occasion that he was – incarcerated awaiting trial and he escaped from that and then just sort of took on the new identity to come to Florida. Yeah. Well, what happened was, um, through all his time of murder, um, 
what what he would do is the, the investigations would get so hot, like up, uh, up in Washington State. He left there, came to Utah to uh, supposedly attend law school, which he did. But he was really thrilled about having a new hunting ground. When that became hot, he would strike out into Colorado and in Idaho. And he was nearly caught in Idaho. He was caught in a woman's dorm, and he, they asked for his identification. He didn't have it. So they made him leave. But that was the closest he ever came to it. But in in August of 1975, he was he was out hunting. He said later he wasn't out hunting that night for women, but he was. His murder kit was uh, was was in his car. It was open. Stuff was out of it. He had already he, he had removed the passenger seat uh, to his VW. Laid that in the back. The reason why he did that because sometimes when he pick up these girls, he'd whack them, and he'd, he'd lay them down there and throw a like uh, a blanket over them. But he was but he was arrested because he was. In the neighborhood, and he tried to in Granger, Utah, and he tried to run from this this cop, and um, so he was arrested. And and he, you know he was being very suspicious. He said he'd gone to a movie that wasn't even playing, and so you know he, the detectives were called in. They came to the scene, and Detective Andrak, uh, you know, I mean, it, he knew that this guy was more than just a burglar. He had some tools in his car. They thought, well, he might be a burglar. But Andrak would later said, no, no, this is more, he's more than a burglar because he's got stuff in there for tying people up. And so he was arrested in August, but they, but they didn't make the connection uh, until October that it was Bundy who a year earlier in Utah had tried to kidnap a woman uh, named Carol Durant. And we'll pick it up there, uh, Kevin, right after the break. Our guest, Kevin Sullivan, the book, The Bundy Secrets, chilling, chilling and fascinating information. More after this break. You are listening to Jim Paris Live. All right, we will go ahead now and open up the phone lines. If you want to call in with your question or comment about Ted Bundy, uh, maybe something you're thinking of asking that I haven't asked, something you've always wanted to ask someone who's an expert on Ted Bundy, 877-317-6432. Or you can send your questions by email, jim at christianmoney.com. Please include your city in the subject line of your email, jim at christianmoney.com. Or call in now with your question toll-free, 877-317-6432. And before we get back here to the arrest history of Ted Bundy, uh, I wanted to make a comment about the uh, very interesting YouTube videos that you will find from Kevin Sullivan, our guest. So if you go to YouTube and type in Kevin Sullivan Ted Bundy, you will find a series of videos. Um, uh, Kevin, some of these taking you to various locations of the crimes as you go on the road uh, looking at these cases and the actual locations. Is that right? Oh, sure. Yes, that's correct. I have been to a number of locations, uh, but not all of them. The first time around when I was writing the Bundy murders because I'd gotten like I couldn't make it to Washington State, but I got everything I needed from there, maps, photographs, but all the case files. So, uh, but, but I wanted to just make a visit to all of them. And so I did so in 2015 and it was fun. And my publisher, Wild Blue Press, suggested I make some, some, you know, videos. And I really hadn't thought about it. So I, 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 I'm a novice at that, but I threw myself into it and did it anyway. And I think they came off 
It'll, yeah, it'll well, you know, well. I, I, I mean, today it's not even so much about the production quality. People will forgive right. production quality if there's good information right. in there. And, yeah. and uh, yeah. these videos look very, very interesting. So, so, so Ted Bundy, there were many opportunities for him <laughs> to have been caught and held and prosecuted. And it seemed like even with the authorities, this guy's will to continue on was greater than their will to to hold on to him. And uh, yeah. it's so sad because there's so many occasions like you had pointed out where he may have been caught and arrested mm -hmm. and then been become a convicted mm -hmm. felon and may not have been able to go on. But give us the quick history of the various occasions. So so this sure. this last one you were referencing, tell us again where right. that was. And then they didn't hold him and, and he got away. Yeah, well, what happened uh, is uh, after he was arrested in August, uh, they actually pinned the Carol Durant abduction on him, where he tried to. Uh, Car Carol is the only woman that ever got away from Bundy, and wow. uh, and she lived, and she reported it was a man with a Volkswagen playing a police officer, but she, but but she got away from him, and that same night he left immediately and went and kidnapped Debbie Cat out of the Vimont High School, uh, and uh, and and killed her. Well, they. Jerry Thompson put two and two together, and he was charged with the abduction of Carol Durant. And he was—he went through a trial in early 1976 and was convicted of that. And he received a one to fifteen-year sentence at Point of the Mountain Prison, the Utah State Prison. And while he was in the Utah prison, uh, Mike Fisher out of Colorado, who is a really a nice guy and a, just an excellent investigator—I mean, all these guys are—but. Mike got uh, a, a warrant uh, for, for for taken out for the murder of Karen Campbell that Bundy had killed uh, at, at the Wildwood Inn. And so transferred to Colorado, and because of the laxness, the lax attitude of the jailers, he got away the first time by jumping out a second-story window and i've been up to that window that was a, a a law library where he was asking yes. for time to prepare for his trial is that right yes yes which he had a right to do because he was helping to represent himself but they left a window open it's an old courthouse like a hundred years old and it, and i've been up there I look it's 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 a it's very daunting to jump from that height but he did it he injured himself but not 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 bad enough that, that he couldn't run but he wandered around in the wilderness for five days. It, he was brought back. He was ended up transferred to uh, a different jail. And he ended up escaping from there because they put him in a cell. There's this rather large light fixture that was due to be welded. But they didn't weld it. They thought, he, he can't get up there. The prisoners, the other prisoners, would report to the jailers, we hear Bundy crawling up above us at night. He's above us, and then he'll go back to his cell. They did nothing. Listen, th th these folks, as far as the jail, it, it was like the Keystone Cops. The second time he got away, he got away for good, and he made it to uh, Denver, hopped a flight to Chicago, took a train to Ann Arbor, uh, came down through. He got kind of confused on where he wanted to go. He wanted to go to Florida, but he came through Louisville, and I remember I was just a, you know, a young person at the time. I mean, I was, I was already a minister, but young compared to now. And uh, I remember thinking, that's the first I heard of him. And then when I heard of his second escape, I thought, boy, oh, he didn't come through Louisville. But he did. Took, took the car, a stolen car, to Atlanta, dropped it off, took a trailways bus to Florida. 
Uh, now, and, let and me stop you on, on Chicago yeah. because this is interesting. I have heard this from other people. We have an emailer. Uh-huh. We have a lot of listeners in Chicago. Uh, some speculate this emailer wants to know, has there ever been any connection to murders in these other stops along the way, including Chicago, which I've heard about on more than uh-huh. one occasion, speculation that there may have been murders in Chicago, Excellent which, of course, question. has several college campuses there. <clears throat> Yeah, excellent question. I don't think so, uh, because of this reason. Uh, he was interviewed, Bundy, uh, a couple times by a criminologist here in Louisville uh, by the name of Ron Holmes. And Holmes asked him, when he heard he came through Louisville and he ate a pancake on East Jefferson Street here in Louisville, which I, I used to pass all, all the time. And he asked, when Holmes heard that, he said, did anything else happen while you were here in Louisville? And Bundy said he looked at him and laughed. And he spoke in the third person. He said that person didn't have time for those things. So in other words, he was in a getaway mode. So chances are he didn't kill anybody in Chicago or Ann Arbor or in Louisville or Atlanta. Uh, He waited. In fact, he was in, once he got to Tallahassee, that need, quote, unquote, to to murder again was, you know, delayed by like maybe a couple of weeks. And then it started again. And then when it started again, it was like a frenzy. So, Chances are he didn't kill anybody on that flight, uh, on that uh, path he took. To he was more worried about keeping that. a keeping a, a low profile uh, during yeah. that time period. But but suffice yeah. it to say, had he not escaped from prison, there would right. have been a lot of lives that obviously w- would have been saved. And to put this in context, you know, we have right. people listening. We have people listening today of, of all different ages, you know, to our show. But but sure. if this were to happen today. Uh, someone who was wanted uh, for an abduction or a murder who was on the run mm-hmm. with the Internet and with cable television and all the other things we right. have today. Facebook, Ted Bundy probably would not have gotten very far in today's world. Well, you know, people have asked me that and they said, do you think he would not have killed? And I said, there isn't any way he would have killed, but he would have adapted with the times and smart killers out there will adapt. If you can imagine. Bundy would have such a hard time functioning in a society with where everybody has a cell phone, which it just takes pictures, it can record videos. Uh, he would have to become a lot slicker in, in the way he would abduct, but he would still abduct because that need is there. Also, whenever he, of course, he was a serial sex killer, so there's never anybody that's abducted by him and murdered where he didn't have sex with them. Chances are a rape before that. He very often would be having sex with them as he murdered them, and he loved necrophilia, so he would have sex afterwards. So one thing he wouldn't be doing, he would not be depositing himself, as it were, into those women unless he would bury them all. Because he'd never leave them out in in the forest just to have the animals eaten, because if anybody got hold of a body, they'd be able to match him through, you know, DNA. But he didn't have to worry about that then. And Bundy did say anybody he buried, uh, they stayed buried. The only time we ever found, the the cops ever found, you know, remains were those he left on top of the ground. Usually by the time they found them, usually, not always, they were scattered bones. But sometimes he found them like, uh, you know, uh, Lauren Amy, she, she, her full 
whole body was there. But anyway. Yeah, in interesting Yeah, how he would display the bodies. And after this break, we're going to ask Kevin Sullivan, who is also a pastor, what he thinks is spiritually going on within someone like a Ted Bundy. Is it a psychological disorder, demon possession, uh, all of that and more? Stay tuned. You're listening to Jim Paris Live. All right, we are back, and uh, some tremendous questions coming in. And if you want to find out more about Kevin Sullivan, his name is Kevin M. M is the middle initial M, Sullivan. You'll find him on Facebook. He has a Facebook page that is very active with information about the Bundy murders. He's also over on YouTube with a number of videos. His publisher is Wild Blue Press. Dot com, And then, of course, you'll find his various books at Amazon.com. Uh, Kevin, have I covered all bases or is there a personal website as well? No, that's great. Yeah, that's great. And, and, and the only thing I'll say, if you go, to, if they go to wildbluepress.com, scroll down on the authors, you'll see my name. Click on it. They have all the books that I've got, like five, four or five publishers. They, they, they've got all the books there, uh, even though it's not published by Wild Blue Press Plus. I write true crime blogs, and they're all archived at Wild Blue Press, so you can go back and read those. And again, uh, just like you said, Jim, you, you can go to my author page at Amazon, and you can see everything there as well. By the way, uh, just to put a bug in your ear, uh, you should check a book out that I wrote, my only true crime book, which is about a scam that uh, built $150 million from Christians uh, it wow. was about profitable. It's called Profitable Sunrise. The book is called Exposing mm -hmm. the Ponzi Masters. And wow. it's a pretty dark mm -hmm. book about where the money yep. ended up, which is in uh, promoting child uh, porn and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, it, no it, but that, that book is just an ebook on Amazon. I'd love yeah, to I'll get uh, love to get your feedback on that. So, so let's sure. go to this question here from Dallas, Texas. Fantastic question. Being that you're both a pastor and a true crime writer, what a great question from Dallas, Texas. Do you believe that Ted Bundy is just a criminal sociopath, serial killer in the sort of generic um, secular sense, we might say, mm -hmm. or do you think there's something deeper and darker going on here spiritually in, in a person like a Ted Bundy, such as demon possession? Yes, uh, absolutely. Now it's not anything I talk about in my true crime book, but, uh, but I, I think I say in the Bundy Mercers at one point when I say that he was never a powerless pawn. Yes, I do believe he had, uh, demon spirits as a pastor, as a, a Christian minister i have seen the activity of darkness i've seen supernatural things uh, reacting out of people and so that's very real and so yes i believe that he did have those and what they would do is they would energize him in the direction he already wanted to go so they moved in unison what bundy wanted and what they wanted was really the same thing and that's why if you look at some of these killers not just bundy uh, you, you'll read about killers that during the act of murder, sometimes they'll say, it feels like I receded within myself and somebody else was doing the killing. Now, knowing what I know about spiritual things, that's easy for me to figure out what's going on. But again, most of the world doesn't accept that. They don't understand it. But, you know, there's a spiritual world and there's a physical. And you'd and almost wonder, ahead, too, yeah. uh, Kevin, is as many yeah. times as 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 Bundy got away from police 
as uh-huh. he was almost caught doing in this occasion. He was almost caught on this occasion. He had these remarkable escapes and so forth. Right. You, you, you would almost say like this is someone that had favor. If if it, these were all good things he right. was doing, you would say good luck or or favor or mm-hmm. God was with you. If you you know if these were right. good things, but being that they're such dark things, you wonder right. if the reverse could be true that there's some dark forces mm-hmm. helping him to oh, to get away. Yeah. Well, this is interesting. I've always, like I say, I've been a reader since I was a kid. Uh, Adolf Hitler, he was a German soldier in the First World War, Austrian uh, Army, I guess he was in. But anyway, he was sitting in a trench one day, and he heard an audible voice say, get up and move. And, you know, trenches aren't just straight. They're st- they, 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 they go in like a snake-like angle purposely so that if a shell hits in the trench, it will be stopped by the angle of it from killing everybody up and down the line. So he's sitting there eating with several people, and he hears this all of a voice get up and move. He moves, and shortly within, like, maybe a minute or so, a shell hits where he was sitting and kills those men. So, yes, I do believe, and they tried to kill Hitler a number of times, and they could never pull it off, never. So, yes, I do believe that there is evil, and spirit. there's a spirit world behind that that can help people who are moving in evil. And, yeah, I I do think all, all that's true. But, again, that's when I have my minister hat on. Right, right, and and I I understand when we address certain topics, uh, sometimes those those two areas don't mix well as far as you know commercial publishing. This question coming in from Jacksonville, Florida, boy, talk about a a chilling premise for. Uh, like a movie or a novel, they want to know right. what your thoughts are about a child of Ted Bundy that uh, was conceived while he was in the yeah. Rayford prison in Stark, Florida, that would presently be the age of 29 today. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. Um, I, I, I've had a couple of emails with Stephen, you know, you know, Michaud and, uh, he said in in one email. I'm glad you said, got his pronunciation you... right out his name, which I butchered yeah, earlier. Okay. That's okay. I used to do it all the time. <laughs> Ron Holmes sent me straight on that. He said it's my show. I said okay. And uh, so anyway, I, I thought it was just you know my shot. But anyway, he said, "Can you imagine what it's like being his daughter?" Boy, that's the truth. I mean, so I'm, I'm say sure that again. Can that. you imagine what it would be like being what? His daughter, that's what Steven said to me in this email. He said, can you imagine what it's like being Ted Bundy's daughter? And so you have to think about, did she, I'm sure she knows who her father was. Now, I know that Carol Boone, I never talked to Carol, and I didn't even try to, but I hear she died several years ago. But I'm sure the girl, as you say, she'd be like maybe 29 now. Uh, I'm sure she knows who her dad is. And how does she reconcile that? So, so are you saying that this is confirmed that he did have a child and the child was a a daughter? Oh, he absolutely did. Yeah. Okay. I I was not, I was not aware that that I had heard this. I didn't know that it was an actually a confirmed thing. So they, they, they Mm -hmm. actually allowed him at that point to have what the so-called conjugal visits. Is that, is that right? I don't No, I don't think they allowed him. Two things have happened uh, may have happened. I think what he did probably is, pay some guards to look the other way and he just had sex with her and or some people think he ejaculated into a balloon and that he gave it to her on one of the visits and she inserted that within her and then the rest would be history that doesn't sound as plausible to me as him paying the guards to look the other way i don't know how he accomplished it because there are no conjugal visits in that prison or at least there 
there weren't at that time. And so I, I don't know how he did it, but yeah, it, it's an absolute fact. He does ha- have a kid. So yeah, that's interesting. And you would imagine yeah. that she probably would have maybe changed her name or somehow yes, yes, kept herself did, out of actually. the, yeah, because mm-hmm. that that would be uh, that that would be quite something to have a, a father, uh, it, almost as bad as uh, finding out your father's Darth Vader, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's a terrible thing. But you know, the girl just has to. I hope she can see her dad as somebody who was uh, terribly warped and. Uh, yeah, yeah, it doesn't necessarily I, mean that she's. Her. That she's a, a, a bad person, no, per se. But someone's at the, this same fine. emailer from Jacksonville is asking about the kinfolks of of Ted Bundy. Are, are there any mm-hmm. uh, siblings, um, cousins, uh, you know, any, uh, mm-hmm. you know, any any other family that we know of of Ted Bundy? Yeah, they all live up in the area. still. So I don't think they I think they all live in Washington State. In fact, Linda Bundy used to be on Facebook. I've, I've seen her picture and Glenn Bundy. Who now, who is, who is him. Linda? Who is Linda Bundy to Ted? Is, would that okay. be? Yeah, he has four. Like when, uh, when, uh, when Ted was born to Louise and she went out to, uh, Browns Point in, uh, in Washington State, which is right in the Seattle area, the, I'm sorry, the Tacoma area. Uh, she married Johnny Bundy. They went on to have four additional children and they had Glenn, Linda Bundy, uh, Sandy, and their last child was Richard. And so it's my understanding they all live up there. But I've seen Glenn's picture, and I've seen uh, Linda's picture, but I I didn't contact any of these people. I can't blame the Bundy family. They don't like to give interviews, and there's not a lot they could tell me anyway. So I, I almost feel like it would be an imposition. So it didn't. I did have a woman, a guy, tell me one day, when he said he knew Linda Bundy, uh, he, that he could have her call me. And so I said, well, that's fine. And then I did get a call from this woman, and it might have been her, but it didn't go very well. And so we ended the conversation. But I'm assuming that might have been her, but that was because I was talking to somebody who knew her, and it just worked out that way. But mostly I don't bother the families of of people like this. Uh, but I, I've talked to a lot of Bundy's friends, and I've talked, I worked with all the main And according to my so. math, uh, Ted Bundy would be age 70 if he were alive today. Yeah, he was. So, uh, yeah, so I, he could I, still yeah, have, like you said, these uh, these stepbrothers. Uh, fascinating oh, yeah. story. Uh, step yep. step uh, family, uh, sisters and brothers. Fascinating story. The Bundy Secrets is the book. Kevin Sullivan has been our guest. Uh, we'll have him back again. Talk about the other books. Great topic here. Ted Bundy. Keep your daughters safe, folks. That's the message. If it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Listening to Jim Paris Live, your source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor in chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, 
Jim Paris. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to hour number two of the broadcast. Pull up a chair by the fire and put on a pot of coffee. This is going to be an interesting hour as we talk about Jack the Ripper. And I thought I would just set this up a little bit. I'm, everybody's heard the phrase Jack the Ripper. But unless you're someone, you know, in today's world that's sort of fascinated as I am with serial uh, murder cases, you may not know the details. So here's just a little bit of a setup. Jack the Ripper is the best known name for an unidentified serial killer generally believed to have been active in the largely impoverished areas in and around the Whitechapel District of London in 1888. Now, the name Jack the Ripper originated in a letter written by someone claiming to be the murderer that was disseminated in the media. Attacks ascribed to Jack the Ripper typically involved female prostitutes who lived and worked in the slums of the East End of London. Uh, wow, this is fascinating. Joining us tonight is Randy Williams. He's the author of a book on this where he actually takes this from the perspective of Sherlock Holmes. And it's called Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. And Randy Williams, welcome to Jim Paris Live. Hi, Jim. Hey, good to have you with us. Uh, uh, a fascinating book. I wanted to start, though, by telling people a little bit about you. So as I understand it, you're a lifelong martial artist, uh, studied Bruce Lee style of martial arts. You're also a private investigator and a bodyguard and all of that. And then, of course, connected with, you know, the three biggest names in, in forensic uh, science, Dr. Michael Bodden, Cyril Wecht and Henry Lee. Uh, wow. Well, what a background. I myself am a third degree black belt currently practicing uh, in Taekwondo uh, here in St. Augustine, Florida. So uh, I love the fact that you're a martial artist. Tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I think you just kind of covered it. Uh, yeah, I've been involved in the martial arts since I was very young. Grew up in L.A. Chinatown and um, happened to be very fortunate in that my house was probably 400 yards from Bruce Lee's school back then. Wow. And, uh, yeah, my neighbors were, were going fu instructors, and one of them was Bruce Lee's top student, uh, Sifu Ted Wong. Sifu meaning master, uh, Chinese master. So I was able to uh, – it was kind of a perfect storm to become a martial artist. And I, I would have been crazy not to have followed that path. So I've been involved in the martial arts, written some books on uh, the style of Wing Chun, Gong Fu, and trained in Bruce Lee's Jeet Kune Do under Sifu Ted Wong. And uh, along the same lines, uh, my career developed in, in uh, criminology and uh, law enforcement. Um, I was always interested in, like you, uh, the serial killer and the mentality behind it and the science of catching these guys. And so I was always fascinated with Sherlock Holmes as a kid growing up. And of all the serial killing cases that I grew up reading about, the Jack the Ripper case was the most fascinating to me and still is to this day. So um, that kind of led me into the, the path of, of law enforcement and uh, in turn, combined with the martial arts, brought me into bodyguarding and personal security. So it kind of all came together for me and, and leaves me off where I am now, currently um, Besides being a private investigator, I got my own little agency. It's called Black Stallion Security and Investigations here in Northeast Pennsylvania. I'm also in the corrections field. Okay, and I have to tell you, you you are a, a very gifted writer. Uh, I I I haven't read the entire book. Uh, we oh, received thanks. it uh, uh, on PDF, uh, 
but wow, what a well-written book. What, what, what is your, uh, you have other books I understand as well over at Amazon, uh, on the martial arts. Is this your only foray into, uh, writing along this style? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, what, what I did was, uh, you know, I tried to faithfully, um, pay tribute. Now I would never purport to, to equal or, or in any way match Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But what I tried to do was pay homage to his style by studying everything that I could get my hands on that he wrote. You know, he, he wrote besides the, the Holmes stories that everybody knows. He also wrote things like medical ghost stories and, uh, war history. He did, uh, you know, just ghost stories, and he even did a, a, a kind of a lost world story about a, a team of scientists going back and finding dinosaurs and things. So, you know, he has pretty a pretty well-rounded uh, repertoire there. And I read everything I could get my hands on of his so that I could sort of be as faithful as possible to his style. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting idea so that our, our listeners understand what you did. You basically said, what if back in the day... Sherlock Holmes, which of course is a fictional character, uh, but but what if Sherlock Holmes were on the case of Jack the Ripper? What would he have done? And then you sort of take us through that whole journey um, in, in a, a fictional yet historically accurate um, portrayal, which then at the end of the book... And I haven't gotten there yet, but and we're not going to give that away tonight, but, but just let me ask you this question. Did you ultimately solve the mystery as far as you're concerned of who the killer was. And we'll let people read the book to find out who it was, but, oh, but just, just yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, uh, you don't want to give it away, do you? Oh, well, well fine. Um, it's up to you. I, I, I don't want to, I've had other authors say, Oh, you gave away the, <laughs> the punchline and now I'm not making any money from being you know, on your show. I, I, you know, I'm of two minds about that because, um, probably some of your listeners are going to be, you know, and rightfully so be somewhat skeptical and say, you know, come on, you solved this this murder or these murders, and you know, then then if I can't really say who it was, it'll be a little bit difficult to present some of my evidence. But you know, so be it. Uh, however you feel, uh, you want. Yeah. To so what we'll do then is mind. is I'll I'll get to that a little bit later in the interview. So that'll be the payoff pitch, and that's uh, good radio to sort of set this up by by teasing people along. Um, before this break, though, tell me why are we so fascinated with serial killers. I, I myself am. I have a daughter who almost went into uh, forensic psychology because of her fascination with serial killers. I have done uh, a number of shows on the topic of Ted Bundy, and every time I do a show on a serial killer, my downloads go like off the charts into the tens of thousands. Right. It's like, what is it about serial killers that we are fascinated by these, these folks? Well, I think there's kind of a combination between, uh, you know, the the idea of of trying to analyze what what went wrong, what what would cause a person to do that, and and the curiosity, why would someone go so far, stray so far off the path, and 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 do such horrendous acts, combined with you know, in in my case, the fascination with the how they were caught. I've always been fascinated with the kind of working backwards and the methodology behind catching them, and that's fascinating to me. But I think there's also a little bit of this um, a, a kind of a you know how you you'll go by a train wreck or you'll go by a, a wreck on the expressway and 
you almost have to look. You can't help but and, look. And, and when I teach women self-defense is one of the things I do. I'm certified in the, in the rape defense program. And, and I talk about Ted Bundy a lot. I, I show a documentary uh, to my, mm-hmm. you know, eight week long class. I start by showing them a Ted Bundy documentary, which kind of scares them to death. But I say Ted right. Bundy has like a black belt, black belt or higher uh, in evilness. And, and, and you have mm-hmm. to match up against this on rare occasion but you still have to match up against it. Is that part of our fascination is just how diabolical some of these people are? I mean, Ted Bundy with the fake casts oh. and crutches and well, yeah, all you, of the things he it. did. Sure, sure. You, you know, I mean, you absolutely hit it on the head. There's this kind of morbid fascination. Um, why do we watch uh, The Exorcist or why do we watch horror movies? Um, but in, in the case of a horror movie, you have something we call suspension of disbelief, where you momentarily pretend you don't know there, there aren't any vampires. And this couldn't, couldn't be more real, which is why it's even scarier than a fake horror movie. A break coming up. We'll be back in four minutes. Our special guest, Randy, Mil- Randy Williams, the book uh, all about Jack the Ripper. We'll have that and more. Stay tuned. You are listening to Jim Paris Live. All right, we are back. The book is called Sherlock Holmes in the Autumn of Terror. It's all about the Jack the Ripper case. And if you go to Amazon... You will find that this book has 137 reviews, almost a perfect five-star rating from those that have read it. It is over 600 pages. There are pictures, there are diagrams, and it's all written um, from the standpoint of what would Sherlock Holmes have done to catch Jack the Ripper. A fascinating idea to take a book from that perspective. I know Christmas is coming up in a week. So for those of you still searching for that last-minute gift, you can grab this over at Amazon. Uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. And our guest this hour is Randy Williams. He's a lifelong martial artist, private detective, and he says that he solved the case of Jack the Ripper. And uh, why don't we start, Randy, by setting the stage for those that don't know who Jack the Ripper was and what these series of murders were. Tell us about the murders, how many there were, and why this case is still so famous today. Well, the number of murders is is up for grabs. You know, the people that are interested in this case and are really sort of um, involved in it, almost to the point of obsession, many of them, us, uh, are known as Ripperologists. And within the, the Ripperology community, there is no general consensus on how many murders there were. It is generally accepted that there were five. Um, those are called the canonical um, murders. And I'm not of the opinion that there were five. I actually believe and have proven to my satisfaction and the satisfaction of my co-authors as well as some local uh, law enforcement officials and court officials that there were actually 13 murders, uh, 13 attacks, possibly 14. Um, so, you know, that, that number is... is sort of not agreed upon, but that's not anything unusual because in the Ripperology community, very little is agreed upon by everyone, if, if anything. So um, we feel that there were 13 murders altogether, and the murders were all of prostitutes, which were known in those days as unfortunates, and that's kind of a good name for them. And we, uh, we believe that the, the Ripper was more than one man. As a matter of fact, we believe it was a team of three commissioned by a fourth who had uh, a record of hiring others to commit murders on his behalf for political gain. 
hmm. and uh, was convicted and was actually imprisoned three times and was uh, actually e- exiled from a, a couple of different countries, three countries to be exact, for for those crimes. So in the 1800s, and I think you set it up really well at the beginning of the show, the way you described Whitechapel as being sort of an impoverished area of London where there was, was crime, there was prostitution, murder, robbery, burglary. There was famine. There was homelessness. There was disease running rampant. It was a very, very um, blighted area, and it was only miles from Buckingham Palace. And, and back then, people thought of the British Empire as, you know, the, the, the sun never sets on the British Empire. And it was a shock to many people back then, and probably today, that there was such an impoverished area of London so close to the very center of, of the British Empire. It almost reminds me of, like, one of those scenes in Les Mis where you kind of are brought back to that. I know that was France, but but still the idea of people in that day and age. And, and I think we just take so much for granted today, all of the blessings we have of, of, of clean water and indoor plumbing and heat and, and, and uh, air conditioning and access to refrigeration for food to just think about how the poor lived, you know, back in the late 1800s. I mean, uh, it's not so, so right. Yes. It's not so bad being poor today. Being poor today is, is, is probably like being rich, you know, back, back in the day. One of the things you and I chatted about a little bit on Facebook, we were messaging is, is, is a little bit of the motivation of the killers and uh, let's start referring to them in plural because that's what, what your conclusion was, uh, that there might have been some spiritual motivation behind this. Uh, were, were, they, were they in their, in their mind like doing a good thing to be murdering prostitutes, you know, people that were fornicators? Uh, uh, was this sort of their idea of justice? You know, not in that way, in my opinion, but, you know, there was a motive. And first of all, just to, to establish this for everybody listening, in, in a U.S. court of law, there is no motive required to be shown to, to convict someone of murder. It's always nice to show the, the jury what the motivation was, but it's absolutely not an element of any case to prove motive. However, it's always important, um, especially in a case like this, to explain the motive. Now, in this case, the, the motives were race, religion, and politics, not necessarily in that order. They were basically terror attacks, very similar to what ISIS is doing today. The, the main enemies of their cause, the Rippers, um, were capitalism and Christianity. And they are, they've always been the greatest enemies of the anarchist-slash-socialist-slash-communist cause. If you look back at even uh, in 1844, Karl Marx wrote a treatise on economics and philosophy, and he names those he names Christianity and capitalism as the greatest enemies uh, of of his cause. And one of my suspects, uh, I might as well say who it was, it was Prince Kropotkin of Russia, who was the man behind the, the motivation. Uh, he names Christianity and capitalism as his greatest enemies, and and what they did was. They used these murders, in my opinion, as a form of propaganda, which is near and dear to the communist and socialist anarchist. What they did was they chose these prostitutes because it was salacious. It grabbed the attention, like you, you mentioned earlier when we first started talking. It's something that fascinates people. And even back in the 1800s, you know, if you wanted to grab people's attention, 
a, a salacious murder of prostitutes back then. Even today, it grabs the attention. But imagine in the 1800s. And what they did was, you know, they didn't hate, in my opinion, they didn't hate prostitutes per se. They hated prostitution. Communists, anarchists, socialists hate prostitution as the absolute most egregious abuse of human beings possible. And so what they did, in my opinion, was they targeted prostitutes and used them as martyrs. They thought in this war against prostitution, there have to be some some casualties, like there are in any war. In the Vietnam War, the Korean War, any war you name, there are casualties. And I think that they looked at these women as martyrs. And in fact, in their own newspaper published by their club called the International Working Men's Educational Club, they called these victims martyrs, meaning women that died for their their religion or their cause. Well, talk about getting into someone's mind. So in order to help prostitutes, we're going to kill prostitutes. Yes, as as odd as that sounds, it it makes a bizarre sense. Today, you know, the ISIS guys will mow down a crowd of innocent bystanders, you know, in, in at Westminster or in Times Square or in Nice, France. They'll just mow down a random group of, of people. But in but what the Rippers did was they specifically chose prostitutes as martyrs to a cause. And I hate to give these guys any credit, but they actually did. Well, and and, and look at the look at a, a modern day example of that. Ted Kaczynski, he, yeah, he yeah. picked certain pro, a certain prototype of person to make his argument about the evil of technology, and he didn't have any personal angst with any of them. But he went after them because of what they represented. And that would fulfill his goal. All right, a lot more to talk about. Randy Williams is with us, Sherlock Holmes, and the Autumn of Terror. Jack the Ripper will be back. You're listening to Jim Paris Live. All right, we are back. Randy Williams is here. He's author of Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. If you like true crime and you also like Sherlock Holmes, it's sort of a mixture of the two. The book has uh, almost a perfect five-star review on Amazon.com. You can pick that up. And, Randy, do you have a website or anything you want to give out? Yeah. Um, well, people can find me on Facebook. The page for the book is called Randy Williams versus Jack the Ripper. No space is Randy Williams vs. Jack the Ripper. And there's a lot of um, essays on that page, pictures. Um, there's quite a bit of information about the case and about the book there. Very good. And uh, the questions are starting to roll in by email. We have a very loyal audience, uh, many of which will ask the, their questions by email. So I'll just go ahead and let everybody know. If you have a question, I'm going to open up the phone lines also right now. 877-317-6432 is the number to dial if you'd like to talk to author Randy Williams about uh, his book on Jack the Ripper. You have your own theory. You've got a question for him on his theory. 877-317-6432. Also, you can send your questions by email to jim at christianmoney.com. As always, we ask you to put the, your uh, city in the subject line so we know where you're listening, jim at christianmoney.com or 877-317-6432. And uh, Randy, let me ask this question. It's a, it's a great one because uh, we get to use a, a radio segue and go from Sherlock Holmes to H.H. Holmes. This is the question coming in from a listener in Chicago. Uh, there's a number of people that think that this character, H.H. Uh, H. Holmes, uh, who was a mass murderer based out of the Chicago area, that he actually went over to 
uh, to Europe and committed these crimes and then came back. And the connection they make is the uh, sort of surgical mutilation that he had a medical background. And I guess there's even some sort of an A&E uh, TV show about this or a series on this. This uh, emailer from Chicago wants to know what you think about that idea of H.H. Holmes being Jack the Ripper. Well, it's a fascinating concept, and I understand why they might think so. But um, first of all, I have evidence to the contrary. But to begin with, there were actual eyewitnesses. Uh, and specifically, there was an eyewitness to the double event, which was Jack the Ripper's tour de force performance, where he killed two women in one night. And there was an actual eyewitness. And that eyewitness was a, a Hungarian Jewish man named Israel Schwartz who lived very close to the murder site. And Israel Schwartz uh, actually identified the murder as being a Jewish man um, who had an accomplice standing across the street who chased Schwartz away after having been called a Jewish name. And so it's it sort of, uh, and other eyewitnesses that saw Jack the Ripper always uh, claimed he was a Jewish man, which H.H. H. Holmes was not. Um, I don't know that there's any evidence that H.H. H. Holmes was ever in London, but I think it would be very difficult for eyewitnesses to confuse an American with um, a Jewish man, an American Gentile, rather, with a Jewish man. And the fact that Israel Schwartz was himself Jewish and recognized Hebrew being spoken, uh, I think, weighs heavily uh, against anyone who was not of uh, Jewish, Jewish origin. Uh, I'm not here to refute anyone else's theory. I'm here to promote mine. Sure. But um, w when we talk about the surgical precision, now I've got three of the world's top criminalists on my team, two of which performed thousands and thousands of autopsies through their lifetimes. And neither of them is of the opinion that Jack the Ripper had any more skill than uh, the average Northeast Pennsylvania hunter. I've got friends who never graduated high school, and they can dismember a deer in a matter of one to two minutes without spilling much blood and without damaging any of the internal organs. They're not surgeons. They're just guys that have done it for most of their lives. And I think that the Rippers uh, learn by doing. And if we look at the progression from attacks to murders and culminating with the Mary Kelly killing, I think we can say that they learned by doing, not unlike hunters. And they may have very tell us, well Randy, what the mutilation tell us about the mutilation that occurred to the bodies and, and what was the reason for that? What were they trying to 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 further their message in some way by by removing certain uh, or they, they removed certain organs from the body? Is that right? Yes, they did. Uh, specifically, the uterus, the heart uh, and the kidneys. Now, what I believe they were trying to do was was create shock value. I did a video, an animation uh, on on uh, YouTube, which your listeners can look at. Uh, it's called Jack the Ripper, the McCarthy Letter. And there's an animation there. And in it, I show um, one of the mutilations that was done was to Catherine Eddowes in Mitre Square. She suffered horrific mutilation, uterus removed, uh, internal organs, uh, uh, kidney removed and taken away from the scene of the crime, and then mailed to... Uh, a local vigilante in Whitechapel who my guys would have hated because they were going around beating up innocent Jews. They didn't choose to send the kidney or the letter to the police or the newspaper. They sent it to this guy, George Lusk, who headed up this 
vigilance committee. They would have hated him. Um, but what they did was they also mutilated the woman's face. And if we look at the person, the picture of the woman's face viewed from the right side of the body as if you were kneeling to the right side of the body, as all of the doctors uh, concur the murderer would have been doing when he did these mutilations, it's very plain to see that in her face are carved the initials IK three times in her face. Now, people have postulated on what these mutilations were. They look like little V's cut in her cheeks and chin and slashes through the eyes and mouth. But when you view that, that picture from the side, the way the murderer would have been looking, it's very obvious to me that you can see IK carved into her face very plainly three times. And in fact, on her chin, IMK, and Isaac M. Kozabrowski was one of my three suspects. So I believe that that mutilation was done sort of almost as a, a shock value. If, if you gave a, this kid was 17 years old, if you gave a kid a knife and sat him at a picnic table and said, here, carve up this picnic table, what do you think the kid would carve? Probably his initials, and that's what I think he did to her face. Um, if you look at that drawing, the police sketch, uh, the forensic sketch of, of the injuries to her face, to me it's very obvious. You can see IMK carved into her face. You now tell us. Perceive, go ahead. Go on. Well, you uh, can tell also us. I, I was going to ask you at, at this point, uh, because we've mentioned, I think, two of them. Tell us who all three are and then give us sort of the connection between these three, uh, the, 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 right. the three murderers. Well, yes. Well, first of all, we know that, you know, historically it's not common, but it has occurred a number of times where multiple killers will commit serial murder. For example, the Chicago Rippers, uh, your, your viewer from Chicago would have heard of them. The Hillside Stranglers, Bone on Bianchi, uh, Shermantine and Herzog, the Gallegos uh, family, the, the, the couple, the Fall River, uh, Massachusetts cult. Recently in the news, there was this Russian cannibal couple that's, that, that committed serial murders. And in, in this case, there were what I call the four jacks. Now, I already mentioned Prince Kropotkin as the jack of diamonds. Uh, the person who funded the operation. But we also have a guy called Louis Deemschutz. He found a body, and I say that, quote-unquote, found a body. Uh, Louis Deemschutz fits the exact description of all the eyewitnesses, including a policeman who saw him. Uh, Deemschutz, by the way, is a fake name. It means uh, protector of noble women in, in Russian and German. Uh, it can also mean protector made of smoke, as in smoke and mirrors are up in smoke. He was an educated guy. He spoke at least five languages, uh, claimed to have found a body, as many murderers have done, to insert themselves in the investigation. You mentioned Ted Bundy earlier. There have been many murderers who have inserted themselves in the investigation. You know, the Atlanta child murderer, uh, Wayne Williams, John Wayne Gacy, the BTK killer, Gary Ridgway, the, the Green River killer, Edmund Kemper. A, a lot of them have inserted themselves, and Dean Schutz did that, too. He was probably the first one to do it, in my opinion. And Randy, we'll hold it there. The music, we've got a break coming up. And when we get back, the names of the other two murderers. And then let's talk a little bit, too, about uh, the forensic uh, dream team that our author, Randy Williams, had helping with this book, uh, how that relationship developed as well. All that and more. We'll be back. You are listening to Jim Paris Live. Sherlock Holmes in the Autumn of Terror is the book. Our guest is Randy Williams. We're talking about Jack the Ripper 
and uh, fascinating book. And uh, we were rudely interrupted there by some more commercials. Our last segment, uh, Randy. So finish telling us who the group was uh, of the killers that make up. Uh, we think of it as one killer, but your book says it was a group of four. Is that right? Correct. Three killers funded and motivated by a fourth. Um, well, I mentioned Louis Diemschutz, who found the body of Elizabeth Stride, the first of the double event murders. There was also Isaac M. Kozabrowski. He was a 17-year-old um, who was arrested with Louis Diemschutz, uh, along with the third uh, murderer, Samuel Friedman, in an unrelated, actually, I say unrelated, but it was actually quite related, a violent crime six months after the double event. Now, uh, Kozabrowski... Um, he lived near one of the victims, Mary Jane Kelly. He lived very, very near to her before she moved to her home in Christchurch where she was murdered. But previously, she lived in Stepney near the gas works, and she was very close neighbors with Kozbrodsky when he was very young. Now, he, uh, I believe, was a very malleable, easily influenced young man that was contracted by uh, Diemschutz, who was the steward of a men's club, that was an, an anarchist socialist club, calling themselves an educational club. And my my third killer was a man called Samuel Friedman, who was 41, 42 at the time of the murders, who I uncovered had a previous rape conviction in 1886. And in 1886, to, to obtain a rape conviction was a very difficult thing uh, in that society. It had to have been a very egregious crime. Um, Friedman... I believe was sort of the the stand the the the, uh, the lookout that would stand off to the side and and watch out and he was the man who chased witness Israel Schwartz away during the double event murder. Now the three of them worked together, I believe, to commit these murders on behalf of Prince uh, Kropotkin, Prince Peter Alexievich Kropotkin, who was imprisoned twice and ejected from Switzerland under suspicion of involvement in the assassination of Tsar Alexander II. Kropotkin was actually forced to leave Switzerland at the insistence of the Russian government. You know, and he received numerous death threats from the Russian Holy League, which was organized to protect the Tsarist regime in in Russia. And later on uh, in France, Kropotkin was again arrested under suspicion that he played a role in terrorist attacks in Lyon. Uh, They never adequately uh, proved it, but he spent three years in Clairvaux prison. And then after his imprisonment, he was expelled yet again and then went to London and started the International Working Men's Educational Club, where he put Diemschutz in charge. Um, and that's the club I mentioned before, the Socialist Anarchist Club, that was masquerading as an educational club. Wow. Uh, now, uh, this is a great question. I love our listeners because they pick up with on things I would never think of. A listener in Dallas is emailing. They want to know, is it possible today to still go to the scenes of these crimes in, in London? Is there uh, like a tour you could go on or has the landscape changed so much that you, you couldn't really go there and sort of, you know, do your own uh, review of oh, the yeah, settings yeah, of can. these crimes? I've actually been to the crime scenes a number of times. Now, some of them are gone. Uh, for example, Mitre Square has been completely demolished. Um, you know, some of the crime scenes, Mary Jane Kelly's home, completely demolished. But you can still go on these tours. In fact, a good friend of mine who's arguably the world's greatest ripperologist, a guy called Richard Jones, runs a beautiful tour in London, and he takes you to the scenes. And even mm-hmm. those that are demolished, he'll take you to where it once stood, and he'll paint a, a great picture for you of the way things were back then. So, yes, you can go to the crime scenes, those that still stand. 
but most of them are have been demolished. Uh, I, I was fortunate enough, I've been involved in this case for over 40 years, and I was actually able to go to some of them before they were demolished. So the if if I understand this right, and tonight I, I learned so much, but it, it seems like it wasn't just that five to thirteen. You're in your uh, you, you concluded were thirteen, but as far as the public knew at the time, it was sort of accepted like that. It was only five or six, maybe at the time. But the fact that the the, the mutilations of the bodies and and all of that is what made this such a quote unquote infamous case is is that fair oh yeah very fair yeah because that, that you always think to yourself wow you know why is this and it seems like every uh, serial murderer today is compared to jack the ripper it's it's kind of like the baseline that everyone yes. after that is compared to now uh, an emailer here from california uh, wants to know about the forensic science behind this. They may not have heard the beginning of the show where I mentioned the dream team, Michael Bodden, Cyril Wecht, Henry Lee. Uh, how, how, tell us about their involvement in the book and what the forensic science uh, did to sort of buttress your position on all of this. Well, first of all, for your, your listeners who don't know, Michael Bodden, um, he used to have that show on HBO called Autopsy. He's a Fox News consultant. He worked on everything from the Warren Commission, President Kennedy assassination, the OJ case. He was taken to, to Russia, brought to Russia to look into Tsar Nicholas's murder. Uh, he worked on Sid Vicious, Claude, Claus von Bulow, the Phil Spector case, Medgar Evers, the Michael Brown, hands up, don't shoot in Ferguson. He's the one that determined the actual circumstances of the, of, of the death. David Carradine, he even worked on Bruce Lee's death. Dr. Wecht. You know, he frequently appears on the nationally syndicated programs like, you know, Forensic Files and Dateline and all of the true crime shows we all love. He also worked on the Warren Commission, Senator Robert F. Kennedy's assassination, Elvis Presley's autopsy, O.J. Simpson case, John Benet Ramsey, you know, Mary Jo Kopechny, the one that drowned uh, with uh, Senator Ted Kennedy. Uh, many, many uh, famous cases. Dr. Henry Lee is best known probably for his involvement in the O.J. case. He was the Chinese criminalist who, who said something's wrong here and sort of brought light to the tainted blood evidence. Uh, he worked on, on John Bonet. He's single-handedly responsible for Elizabeth Smart being recovered safely. Um, he used to have a TV show called Trace Evidence on Court TV. So these guys are big names. And I got them enlisted because they all double-checked my facts once I presented my case to them and found that my case was very, very credible. They helped me uh, in analyzing the doctor's reports from the day, uh, Dr. Lee helped me sort of recreate the crimes. His specialty is sort of recreating crimes as they happened. This guy was hit here, dragged here, kicked here, uh, stabbed here, pulled to this spot, and, and that sort of thing. So Dr. Lee helped me recreate the crime scene. So in my book, when I do, I do the murders twice, once from from the point of view not knowing who the killer is, and then we redo the murders again from the killer's point of view later on in the book and give all the details that Dr. Lee helped me uncover. And, of course, Dr. Wecht and Dr. Bodden helped me very much in understanding which injury occurred first, uh, which, which punch w would have had to have happened first, which stab wound would have happened first, when the mutilations happened, and so forth. So you had access to, I mean, all of these... They're they're not maybe today's autopsy records, but 
all of these records are exist and are publicly available for you to have access yes. to? Yes, yes. All the doctor's reports from the day are still available, and we relied on them heavily. They helped me analyze those, especially from the standpoint of trying to analyze, you know, how did this murder take place? What was the M.O.? You know, where did they, they grab the woman? Where did they drag her? When did this, when did the first blow, when was the first blow landed? When did the stabbing take place? When was the mutilation post-mortem or anti-mortem? That sort of thing. Hmm, fascinating. All right, Florida is emailing. They want to know, so is this a closed case now? Are your peers, ripperologists as you call them, are they accepting this as the final word on the case? Well, many are. Of course, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you're never going to get uh, complete agreement in the ripperology com community ever. And, and many have a dog in the fight. So a person who's written a book about, uh, for example, H.H. H. Holmes having been the Ripper is, is obviously not going to agree you know, with my point of view. But people who read my book and understand the evidence, I mean, we have actual evidence that is lacking in other cases. And there's a reason why it's lacking, because they didn't do it. Um, we have evidence, for example, guilty knowledge. Uh, my, my suspects actually had guilty knowledge and made statements to the newspapers and the police um, before they could have possibly known certain things, but it sort of slipped by. No one paid attention. But if you go back and read the records, you'll find that my guys knew things about the crimes they couldn't possibly have known if they didn't commit the murders or know someone who did. Um, as I mentioned before, I've got a guy with a rape conviction who found one of the bodies and lived very close to where a bloody knife wrapped in cloth was found in the most direct route back to his house from the scene of the second of the double event murders. We've got this. This is a great question. I got to hit you with this last quickly. Uh, Chicago wants to know if you were alive at the time with your evidence and your experts, do you think you could have gotten a conviction on these four? Absolutely. I could get a conviction now, according to the Luzerne County Prosecutor. Wow. Fantastic. Great interview, Randy Williams. So nice to meet you, sir. Uh, we'll have you back. Uh, tell us when your next book comes out. Sherlock Holmes and the Autumn of Terror. If it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Listening to Jim Paris Live, your source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right, hello everybody. Welcome to hour number two of the broadcast. This is going to be riveting. And I want to set this up for you. The book we're talking about tonight is Case Files of the East Area Rapist, also known as the Golden State Killer. He's the most prolific, enigmatic, and dangerous offender the state of California has ever known. Yet he remains unidentified and unpunished to this day. 
with over 100 burglaries, 50 rapes, and possibly a dozen murders. The so-called East Area Rapist, or Golden State Killer, was truly one of history's most vile and heinous criminals. Over a 10-year period, communities like Modesto, Davis, Concord, San Ramon, San Jose, Fremont, Walnut Creek, and even uh, neighborhoods in Sacramento were all violated by this monster. The book, again, the case files of the East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer, and the co-author Keith Comos is with us tonight live. Keith, thanks so much for being with us. Yes, sir. It's great to be here. Oh, there we go. All right. Great, great. Good to have you with us, sir. Uh, Wow. I heard you on Coast to Coast with George Knapp. Uh, I'm a regular guest myself on Coast to Coast. You did a great job on that interview, and I wanted to uh, bring you on our show to share this information with our audience. And uh, some people ask why I do the true crime thing. I teach women's self-defense. One of the things I love to do, I'm a third-degree black belt. I also teach the rape defense program at our martial arts school. And uh, it, it just, it, it, it's scary, but you've got to tell these stories. And we're so glad that you're with us tonight. I wanted to start by asking you, Keith, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved with this book as a co-author. Well, I started out doing social media forensic work for missing persons cases on a volunteer basis and then on a consulting basis, and for a few different active-type cases, um, bodies that couldn't be found and uh, killers who would go online and post things and then try to erase their trail, things like that. And then a research partner of mine, Kat Winters, pulled me into this cold case that she was working on, this East Area Rapist, which I had never heard of. And I had never done a cold case before or worked on it, but some of my computer expertise seemed like it could be beneficial to this case. And we started organizing information and working on information, and that was my approach to it. And then we started building a website. We started building this website about the case, and it grew and it became popular, and we started getting all these tips from it, people with information about the case, ideas about it, we started sharing these tips that we were getting in with law enforcement, and they started sharing information with us. And then other researchers and retired detectives started sharing treasure troves of old reports and information with us for us to parse and work on and put online. And victims and witnesses from the case even contacted us. And after a lot of work, we finally got all of this in order. A lot of this stuff went online, and we were looking for other ways for people to benefit from it. From all of this work and this research that we had done, and the book became the next logical step. All right. Now, what is the website for people that would want to go to find out more, maybe even offer their own tips on your website? Do you have that? I do. It's coldcase-earons.com, or you could go to coldcasewriter.com. The E-A-R-O-N-S stands for East Area Rapist Original Night Stalker. Right, right. This offender's many names. Okay, or they could go to coldcasewriter.com. Right. That's the other option. That might be easier for people to remember that might be driving right now. Now, one of the things that was fascinating to me, so much of this was so fascinating, a riveting interview. Um, So this case um, involves crimes that were committed from 1979 through 1986. And then, as far as we know, it ended in 1986. Do I have those dates right? 
It even goes back further than that. It goes back to 1976. And now there's an assault that we had included in the book that law enforcement is now saying this probably was this guy. So now it goes all the way back to 1975. Okay, so 75 through 1986, and then mysteriously all the activity that would at least uh, appear to be connected to this person, which is, you know, we, we have no arrest, we have no identity of this person, but everything just stops in 1986. Now, that that struck me as odd only because generally what at least those of us who are, I'm a novice, I'm a layman, I'm not someone that follows this as a professional, but don't these uh, people continue to kill until they're caught? How many times do, do we usually see them just stop like this? Not very often. There's usually some kind of compulsion that drives this type of offender. We're learning more and more now that these types of offenders can stop. Sometimes it's because of incarceration somewhere else, and it's just not connected. Sometimes it's because they stop voluntarily, and they, or because they change their M.O. a little bit and offend in other ways. Sometimes they just get too old and can't commit their types of crimes. Or anymore. is it possible that the person died? You know, we don't think of, uh, you know, we don't think of someone being in a car wreck and dying who's a, a serial killer, but maybe God's hand was there and, and stopped all of this in some way. But that is an unusual uh, sort of marker in all of this. The other thing, too, that was, was interesting is that this is, it's a cold case, yes, but how many uh, law enforcement people are still actually working on this case right now today. This case has benefited from a resurgence in media and attention and funding given to it by the state of California and other agencies. The FBI just got involved in 2016 on the 40th anniversary of the case. So this case actually is now more active than it's been since the 1970s and 1980s. So there are a considerable amount of resources devoted to this case one of the reasons is because we have this offender's DNA. And with all of the new technology that's being developed, there's a really good chance that this offender can be caught because of advances in DNA technology, being able to make a familial hit, maybe with a son or a cousin or some other relative, or maybe being able to sequence his uh, DNA in a, in a way to where we can make more of a positive identification through physical characteristics. So it's actually a really exciting time in the case. That is interesting. One one of the uh, other just kind of strange things about this this murderer, this rapist, is of course we we go back in time. This was before the internet, before Facebook and Twitter and all of that. How he would make these phone calls and taunt people uh, before and even after they were attacked. Tell us about the phone calls, and I guess some of these were even recorded. Is that right? That's correct. He would, one of his stalking methods would be to call a residence and they would pick up and there would be no one on the other end of the phone and they would hang up. Then he would call back a little bit later. It's hard to tell if he was doing this for his own personal gratification or if he was casing the house to see when they were home, when they were not home. He would do this with neighbors as well. As time went on, he started to speak to some of his victims. Some of the phone calls were obscene. When they would pick up before they were attacked, they would get obscene phone calls. After they were attacked, sometimes sometimes months after, sometimes years after, 
They would get a phone call. They would recognize his voice because he spoke in a very... He would be calling to taunt even after. And we'll pick it up there after the break. The book is Case Files of the Golden State Killer. Our guest is Keith Comos. And we'll be back after this. You are listening to Jim Paris Live. All right, we are back. Our guest this hour is Keith Comos. His name is spelled K-O-M-O-S. If you want to uh, look up this book, find it over at Amazon.com. The book is Case Files of the East Area Rapist slash Golden State Killer. Uh, This killer, serial killer, had many different names. We're going to talk about that a little bit also tonight. Uh, Keith, continue on about the phone calls, because, of course, these crimes happening before caller ID, before the kind of technology that we might have today, uh, where we might be able to like trace a call or or you know connect uh, uh, a caller to a cell phone and know maybe where that call was made from, what geographic area. Um, how many of these um, victims were were called, and was this almost uh, became part of his his process? It would seem kind of sloppy, but yet at the same time, many of these uh, killers they want to show how smart they are by taking extra steps like this and still evading the police. More than half of the victims received phone calls of some kind that they, that we know were from the killer or from the, from the attacker. Then probably a dozen, a little bit over a dozen victims received phone calls after their attack, sometimes long after. In fact, one of the most interesting parts of this case is We had talked about him stopping in 1986. There was one victim, victim number seven, who received a phone call in the early 1990s from someone that she identified as her attacker. And then in 2001, victim number 14 received a phone call, a threatening phone call from someone who she identified as her attacker. So unless it was a family member playing a very cruel joke or something like that, it's very possible that this person was still alive in 2001. And it does seem that the phone calls were a part of the gratification or the I'm cleverer than you sort of way that he was going with some of these attacks. It seemed like it was part of the attack and the terror and the fear that he would instill into these victims. And what's interesting, so many different crimes involving so many people, of course, you know, those that were murdered would not live to be able to be witnesses. Um, but uh, it, it seems like those that lived, those that were sexually assaulted and and, and were not murdered, who, who later attempted to provide descriptions, I'm looking, for example, at the Wikipedia page here, at, at, at all of these different sketches, and it doesn't seem like anyone could really nail down what this guy looked like. Uh, there seems to be some similarity in these sketches, but can you give us a general physical description, maybe sort of aggregating the descriptions together, and then tell us what age the Golden State Killer would be today? He was about 5'10". He had a size 9 or 9.5 shoe. He was somewhere between 150 and 180 pounds. He was a white male, anywhere from his late teens to early 30s in 1976. So today, he'd be somewhere between 60 and 75 years old. And so if identified, it's very possible that he'd be around to stand trial and pay for all these crimes and 
the uh, birth dates we give are generally somewhere in the 40s, 50s, early 60s is really pushing it. Uh, he may have used knots and bindings in his normal life. As far as job goes, it's not really a physical characteristic, but as far as job goes, he may have been in construction or a commercial painter, but there are other ties to other types of careers that he may have had. So, But you're right, we really don't know a lot about his physical description. There are four dozen witness sketches related to this case, and only half of them are available publicly, and they're, they're really all over the place. We really don't have a very good idea of what he looks like. And a lot of those sketches are just some suspicious people in the area, so they could be completely unrelated. And one theory is that he may have relocated, right? So uh, as far as these crimes being all tied together happening in California, uh, what if he got on an airplane and went to another country or another state? Um, he could have operated somewhere else and continued to murder, but it maybe changed his M.O. to where there was no connection made. Is that possible? Some of his crimes were over 300 miles apart. In California, that only gets you about a third of the way across the state. In other parts of the country, you can skip over several states in that sort of distance. So it does show that he was willing to travel. He did seem to be trying to keep his crimes from being connected to each other toward the end. And toward the end is when he started killing. So it's very possible that he went as far down south as San Diego. There are some crimes down there that look like they might be him. There are some other crimes up in Oregon and Washington that may be tied to this case. And it, he did show a proclivity toward traveling and going to new places and then hitting there only a couple times and then moving on to somewhere else. So he may have offended outside of California. He may have offended inside California, and it hasn't been tied. With a, an offender that is this prolific and this tactical, you never know what he did to avoid being detected and being caught. He clearly did not want to be caught or identified. Very interesting. Now, in your research in all of this, and I know this is a bizarre question to ask because, you know, what? how do you figure out a motivation? But was there ever any idea of what was motivating this guy to do this? Did he leave any notes or give any clues to anyone about why he was he was doing this? It seemed, really, it just boils down to he wants to scare people and hurt people and derive some sort of power and satisfaction from that. The FBI and uh, uh, some law enforcement down in Florida actually weighed in and did an extensive profile on him and really didn't come up with a lot. They came up with, this is what he might have done for a living, this is what he liked to do. This is how he liked to commit his crimes. But as far as the why, I think that's what draws a lot of people to crimes like this is it's something that normal people can't fathom and can't understand. And they want to find out what makes a human being do something like this to other human beings and not just do it once or twice. But this guy dedicated at least 10 years of his life to creating a trail of terror across an entire state and maybe beyond. And it's really interesting from a psychological standpoint, from a human interest standpoint, even from a spiritual standpoint, what creates something like this? And is there something that we can learn as a society that can prevent things like this from happening? 
bullying or something like that. What, what makes a guy like this tick? Really, I don't know. I thought when I first started this process, I had some ideas. And the more I learned about it, it just all got thrown out the window. And I, I ended up more confused than I was before I started as far as his motivation, because it's just something that we can't understand. We've got another break coming up. What I want to get into after the break is I want to talk about, uh, Keith, your uh, involvement in this from a, a technical side of it, from a, uh, you know, being, being sort of the, the computer guru, social media guy. Of course, there was no social media back then, but there's still a lot of public records that could possibly be accessed, and we'll find out how you're using those to try and find the killer. And also, was there any connection between all of these victims? How were they selected? Is there a common thread? All of that and more when we come back as we continue to discuss the Golden State Killer on this episode of Jim Paris Live. You're listening to Jim Paris Live. All right, we are back, and uh, so much more to get into our final two segments. Our guest is Keith Comos, and his last name is spelled K-O-M-O-S. It's important if you want to find him on Amazon, Keith Comos, and the book is Case Files of the East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer. Uh, you should be able to find it uh, on Amazon. Is that right, Keith? This is a widely available book? Okay, very good. Um, did, did there is there apparently any connection uh, between the victims? Uh, it, it's it looks like here there's more than fifty crimes uh, here listed on the Wikipedia page um, involving uh, you know just people from all over the state of California. Um, demographically, maybe some similarities, but. Was there any idea, like, for example, if this guy was a commercial painter, that he was working in these neighborhoods and selected his victims that way? Was there ever any common denominator found between the victims? That's one of the things that law enforcement at the time really looked into because they didn't have any real good leads to go off on this guy. They started to look at where was he selecting his victims? Where was he finding them? Did they all go to the same school or did they all work at the same place or in the same area. There wasn't any one common thread that was found throughout all of the victims in the entire series. You know, it's spanned 10 years, so that's, that's to be expected. In little geographical pockets, sometimes there would be similarities found. For instance, in South Sacramento, and there was a similarity between where the two people worked who were targeted. They both worked for the utility company down there. In another area, they three of the people out of the five that were targeted in that area went to the same pizza place in the same short amount of time. In another area, they used the same real estate company, two out of the four. So some of these threads start to emerge. One of the biggest threads that emerges throughout the case is the medical angle. Over 50% of the victims either had a major surgery, their significant other had a major surgery, or they were a doctor or a nurse or a pharmacist or somehow very involved in the medical field, especially toward the end of the series. So it's, it's possible that he had something to do with the medical field. However, these were all in different geographic areas. It's hard to imagine a profession or a professional that would, would move throughout the profession in all these different areas so quickly. But it's something that's uh, statistically significant, so it's worth looking at 
but there's no one common thread that ties all these together. There are some physical characteristics that a lot of these victims share. It's sort of something that's hard to describe, but all of them were fit. They were all 41 or under, uh, 41 years of old or under. So there were some commonalities. In the earlier series, they all had longer hair, which was the style of the time, but it was something that seemed significant. When he finally attacked one that had shorter hair, it was like, wow, he really broke pattern here. But then you go and you look at, she had only gotten her hair cut two weeks before she was attacked. And all of the pictures in the house, which he had most likely broken into before, some days before he attacked her, had pictures of her with long hair. So there were some commonalities as far as socioeconomic, as far as some of the places that they went and some of the places that they worked, but no one common thread that really helped zero in on how he was selecting these victims. And what are the thoughts on the the large geographic area? I mean, things I think about are like, uh, maybe he was a traveling salesman or a traveling construction worker and had different projects in different areas. Was Was the thought that he was living temporarily in a lot of different areas, sort of at a transient type of a work, which is why he covered such a large geographic swath as opposed to being focused in one community. It's hard to tell if he actually lived in really any of the places where he offended. He seemed very familiar with some locations and not as familiar with others. In Sacramento, he seemed very familiar with the different canals and ditches, and he would seem to use those to traverse the area. But in other cases, especially later in the series, it seemed that he was driving up and down 680 and then turning off, finding a community to attack, going there to attack, hitting it once or twice, and then never going there again. So it's hard to say if he lived in any of these places or how familiar he was with some of these. Later on in the series, he was attacking a lot of places that were by the beach, by the coast. So it's thought that maybe he was at the beach on vacation or going there specifically to scope out different victims and finding them that way. A lot of them were in within walking distance or biking distance from the beach. And it seems like the frequency uh, looking at the list here, it looks like it started as like a once a month thing and then became closer to a twice a month occurrence, the crimes and the attempted crimes. Right. He started out a little bit slower and then really got into a frenzy in some months. There was one May where he attacked five times and Mm. thought that he was gathering intel and scoping out neighborhoods and finding victims. And then after a little intel phase, he'd go and he'd attack them one after the other. There were also instances where he'd try to attack uh, an individual or a couple and he would fail. And then he would attack somewhere else opportunistically right away. So it's almost like he had to attack, and he planned out a lot of them. Some of them he couldn't have planned out, and he just happened on a victim who was in the wrong spot at the wrong time. So he did seem to have a schedule that was almost predictable in some ways, and it also seemed like he planned out some of his attacks, because especially early on, he would attack in Rancho Cordova, which is in East Sacramento, Then he would go across the river and attack in Carmichael, which is also in uh, eastern Sacramento, but geographically separated by a river. Then he would go back across the river, attack again. Then he'd bounce back and attack again. So it was almost like he was attacking in one area, 
then going away for a little while, letting things settle down, letting the police think, this guy is gone, he's not coming back, then he would go back and hit. And once he did that a couple times, he would never visit an area again. So he did this, it was a strategic a sort of a mindset that he took when he planned some of these crimes, it appears like, at least. One emailer is asking me, was there ever a Florida connection? Because you had mentioned, I believe, that the Florida law enforcement did a profile on on the killer. Why was Florida involved? They did. They just stepped in and helped out. They had the expertise. It was during okay. the period of the case where there wasn't a lot of attention and resources being given to it. They happened to have the expertise, and they did it as a favor almost. There, there's no known Florida connection. There's no known connection outside of California at all for this offender. Now, you're a data guy, and if I understand it correctly, what you do on like a present-day missing persons case would be you would use social media, uh, that person's social media account, to maybe try to drum up clues to try to find a missing person. Is there a way that you can take your skills, those same skills, and go back to the day when we didn't have social media? Of course, we still had a lot of records back then. I mean, it's surprising when I go to a site like Ancestry.com and and how much you can find out about your family history and even records that the government kept on all of us in paper form, maybe, a lot of it you know, back then. But how does a data guy like you apply those skills to a case during this time frame? I've been able to use a technology called OCR to scan in massive amounts of historical data, such as yearbooks, phone directories, old court records, property records, real estate licenses, map data, for the different areas that he attacked and compile that all into databases. And there's a lot of data in general to sort through when you do something like that. But raw computing power is something that we have now that they didn't have back then. And it's something that, that I use to solve problems in my own life, whether it be business or anything else that I tackle. So that's sort of always my approach. So I get all of these together and I start looking for connections. Did one individual who I can tie through different data sources, did this individual live in one specific place in Northern California when the attacks were going on and then live somewhere And then they were in the other location. All right, we'll get into more of that. And also some of the individual cases, which I found to be the most interesting, we'll bring those up as well. The book is Case Files of the Golden State Killer. Our guest is Keith Comos. We'll be back with our last segment. Don't miss it to Jim Paris Live. All right, we are back. Our final segment, we're talking about the Golden State Killer. Our guest is Keith Comos. He's co-author of the book Case Files of the Golden State Killer. And Keith, you were just uh, sharing with us a little bit about this data collection system where you're able to take old printed data and put that in a format where it can be searchable and uh, kind of come into today's modern computer age. Talk about that a little bit more. So I take the different yearbook and demographic data that's available to us that's sometimes just in text form, and I use a technology called OCR to scan it in and make it into a database format. And then from there, we can use different queries to say, show me who lived in different areas at different times, and show me which addresses have people registered to them and which addresses maybe we don't have property records for. And then we can do a little bit more detective work and fill in the blanks. 
but we're able to easily and quickly run these queries and do the legwork that would have taken detectives in the 1970s and 80s days and days to do. And a lot of interesting persons of interest have come to light through this sort of um, data processing that we've been doing. And from there, we send the tip into law enforcement, and they do some investigation of their own, and they can go test the person's DNA. A lot of times they just go and ask for a sample, and the person willingly gives it, or they can get probable cause and get the DNA that way. But we're able to sift through a massive amount of people and a massive amount of data, unlike this case has ever been able to do before. That's interesting. Now, have has any of that technique been applied to the victims to sort of reverse engineer to to try to find that common thread? Yes, we do that frequently. Actually, in fact, we found one interesting thread where relatives of a victim of an early victim lived in some areas where geographic profilers think the offender might have lived. So we wondered if he started finding people through their relatives or if he knew this person, and it began a thread of investigation saying, oh, how, which people did this person know? When did this person start dating this person? And trying to reconstruct the past, trying to reconstruct the world of the 1970s. And a lot of these victims are still alive and willing to talk to us and willing to talk to law enforcement about some of these questions. And they want this guy caught, obviously. So they, a lot of them are very helpful. And it's brought up a bunch of interesting threads. We also do it with employment, different places that people worked, and especially in the construction industry because we're trying to reconstruct a lot of places that were under construction and being painted and being built at certain times because of some physical evidence regarding some paint that was found at some of the fall 1977 attacks. That's sort of a lead that I'm pursuing personally, and it's it's interesting to see all this stuff come together because yeah, the technology ago, is it's it's amazing the technology, available. and now that we have you know DNA, um, so tell me about the August nineteenth uh, murder of Keith Harrington and Patrice Harrington, and then also about their their brother Bruce uh, Keith's brother Bruce and what he did uh, with that large donation. Keith Harrington was 24. Patrice was 27. They lived in a gated community located 125 miles away from the previous murder that had taken place. Keith Harrington was a medical student. Patrice was a nurse. They'd met at UC Irvine Medical Center and got married in May of 1980. So right before they were murdered, they, were, they had gotten married. They lived in San Francisco for a bit. They had only lived in Dana Point for a short time. And when we think about how the killer came across them, a lot of these types of things are important to note. Um, but we don't really know what happened at the scene. Sometime during the night of August 19th, a neighbor heard loud screaming. No one heard from the Harringtons after that. Keith's father went to check on them a couple days later, and he found them in the bed, bludgeoned to death, as all the Golden State Killer cases. And this was a closed gate, community, closed gate community. So Yeah, it was a gated uh, community. You would have yeah. to have records. Uh, you'd have to be someone living or permission to be in there because you're visiting someone that lives there, or maybe you have permission to be in there because you're working in there. Uh, but then again, you've got the medical connection here with them. I, I find that interesting. And, and, and Keith Harrington's brother, Bruce, 
put $2 million into California Proposition 69. Tell us about that. So, right, the brother of uh, Keith Harrington spent $2 million to help enact legislation that made it mandatory for a prisoner of the California judicial system related to sex offenses, murder, and voluntary manslaughter to submit their DNA to a statewide database because we had the offender's DNA. It was through examination of these felons that Bruce felt that the perpetrator would eventually be found. Unfortunately, the perpetrator was not on death row. He was not in the prison system. He was not among the prison population that was tested. So either he's never been convicted and captured in the state of California or beyond, really, because past that, the DNA is uploaded into a national DNA database called CODIS, regularly checked. So it appears that he hasn't been arrested for any crimes in the DNA era. Interesting. And and it it would also possibly bring up a hit if it was a, a relative of his as well um i I think most people most people believe that all uh inmates are dna tested uh that that hasn't historically been the case in california it hasn't historically been the case there was a law saying that they needed to be dna tested however the penalty for not being dna tested was a misdemeanor with a 500 dollars fine so you've got guys on death row and they have legal bills, and they're facing all kinds of charges, and they say, okay, slap me with a misdemeanor. I don't care. Because they don't want to get charged with anything else that they may have committed in the past, or they may just not want something weird to happen with their DNA being matched to something that they didn't do, because there have been false positives in the past as well. So it was a law that they had to do it, but Bruce helped enact legislation that made it mandatory for it to happen. And then the crime on February 2nd, 1978, which seems to me to be the most brazen of all, as if he was getting extremely careless. Uh, This is the uh, shooting of Brian and Katie Maggiore. They're out walking their dog, Rancho Cordova area. He's a military policeman at the Mather Air Force Base and they're actually chased down and shot dead. Is this, this is like in the street, out in public? In the backyard, yeah. The confrontation may have started in the street, but they were shot to death in a backyard, and then he callously climbed over one of the bodies to get over the fence, and he started making his escape out of there. And he was cited by several witnesses as he did this, And it's not confirmed that this was the Golden State Killer, but it's thought that it was. The FBI thinks it was. Most law enforcement agencies think it was. One of the main reasons is there was a ligature left behind, shoelaces tied up in the knot that he would frequently use. And it was right next to one of the bodies. So it was... It's it's thought that this was the offender, and the this was his calling card. This unusual Chinese knot, known as the diamond knot, is that right? Right, he used the diamond knot in one case. In other cases, he used square knots and half hitch knots. And it's it's not the most common knot in the world. Even those, even though they're not as ornate, unless and maybe a sailor, a sailor would use those kind of knots. I would think that's that's where it's used typically. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, I used to have a sailboat, so had to learn all that myself. And uh, when we when we look at uh, all of these crimes, uh, 
I don't know. It seemed like this guy had sort of the luck of Ted Bundy. You know, Ted Bundy had so many close calls uh, and was able to get away with that for so long. Uh, His crimes took so many chances. What would you say was the closest call where they came the closest to catching this guy? Was it the uh, case where there was an FBI agent living nearby? Would that be the case that that almost brought him down? Tell us us that story. Okay, that's that's a fantastic story. The attack started out like any other East Area rapist attack, except he was 300 miles further south than he had ever offended before. And he was a bit more vicious and sadistic, and they thought they were going to be killed, and they, they were most likely going to be the first intentional murder victims. He woke them up with a flashlight, separated them, moved the female to another room, and she heard him chanting, I'll kill him, I'll kill him. So she gets up. She doesn't care if he's going to shoot her, stab her, whatever. She starts running out the door. He runs out after her, brings her in. But as she's outside screaming, an FBI agent hears her screaming. The FBI agent lived next door. A case of maybe the killer not doing his homework like he used to and getting a little bit careless. The, the, the man and the woman both escape from the killer again. They both run out. And we've only got 30 seconds, Keith. I hate to do that to you, but uh, the story is that the FBI agent almost gets him as he escapes on a bicycle and then pursues him in a vehicle, but uh, he drops a bicycle, jumps a fence, and ultimately gets away. Grab the book. It's fascinating. The Golden State Killer, Case Files of the Golden State Killer. If it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Listening to Jim Paris Live, your source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right, hello everybody. Welcome to hour number two of the broadcast. We are back to one of our favorite topics. Favorite, I'm interested in it, you're interested in it, because we get huge amounts of downloads when we go to this topic. So we're back at the topic again, and it's a fascinating topic for me. Tonight, we're going to talk about serial killers. The book is called Sons of Cain, a history of serial killers from the Stone Age to the present. And joining us for the first time is a fantastic author. And by the way, he's got many, many books up at Amazon.com. And Dr. Peter Vronsky is with us tonight. Uh, Good to have you with us, sir. Uh, hi, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Uh, by the way, uh, you're in Toronto, right? That's right, I am. All right, very good. And did I get your last name correct? Is that how you say it? V- Vronsky it is. Vronsky. Okay, very good. Uh, all right, so much I want to ask you because, wow, you are the guy when it comes to this topic. I have to tell you, I have been uh, researching you all week and reading uh, your book. And I tell you, my wife and I went to a haunted hayride last night. And I was like, I was thinking to myself, 
I, I was more scared this year going to the haunted hayride down the street that we we always have a lot of fun with <laughs> than I was usually usually because of your book. And um, uh, I, I have to ask you to start by telling me this bizarre story of what was it in the late seventies? You come face to face with a a serial killer uh, in New York City. Tell us that story. Yeah, 1979, December, I was stranded in New York, and, and you know, it was a tough time in that city, very dangerous. Um, so um, I was checking into a hotel that was a little bit on the seedy side, in a um, kind of in the red light district of, of, of that city. That's where, you know, the cheapest places were. And so, um, you know, before I would check into a hotel in New York that I had never stayed at, I would first take a walk through the hallways um, to see, you know, what's happening in the hallways. You can judge whether it's a safe place or not. So that morning, Sunday morning, um, you know, it's around 8.30, quarter to nine, daylight already. Uh, I get to the lobby. The rooms still aren't ready. And so I said, okay, you know, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a walk around here now and, and see if I want to stay here. So the elevator is not coming down. It's like stuck on the top floor. Uh, and I'm waiting, I'm waiting, and, you know, I'm 23 years old, a very impatient guy at that point. <laughs> uh, you know, and I'm punching away at the button, like, you know, as if that's going to make the elevator come down any faster. But, you know, it probably was maybe 40 seconds. Right? So it comes down, uh, and the door opens, and, and, of course, I'm now annoyed. Uh, you know, there's some guy up there holding up the elevator. How long does it take to get on an elevator, you know? Uh, so I give him a really hard look, you know, in, in, his, in his face. Uh, and he just looks right through me as if I'm not there. Uh, ordinary looking guy, white guy um, in his uh, 30s, typical New Yorker vibe to him, uh, you know, except. You know, there's a sheen of, of, of sweat on his face. And like I said, he's looking through me as if I'm uh, fog, not there. And then he walks right through me and he bangs me um, on the legs with some kind of soft, you know, bag that he was carrying. Uh, it felt like bowling balls at that time. Yeah. And and off he goes. So, you know, that was maybe a five, seven second, ten second encounter tops so i figure i'll go up to the top floor his floor just random uh and i go up the moment i get off of that floor um immediately there's, there's something strange it smelled like um burning chicken feathers right but i figure you know cheap hotel that's what they smell like <laughs> you know it's new york 79 right you know? so I, I you know i i take a walk around and then it starts getting a little mistier and 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 now i you know there's a clamor um there's a fire that has broken out right that's what i was smelling so I go out down the, the fire stairs, out into the streets as the fire department is coming in, and I figure that's it. You know, obviously you're not going to stay there. Here. <laughs> yeah, <you know. laughs> not only does so, it smell like fire, there actually is a fire. Yeah, yeah, you know, so I walk away. Uh, next morning, I get to my destination where I had to be, and in the waiting room, uh, there's newspapers. And so I open the newspaper, and, and the story is um, two 
headless torsos set on fire um, in the hotel uh, where I was checking in. That's what I had walked into. Right? And the guy, of course, on the elevator, I had never thought about him. He just completely went out of my memory. You know, when I returned home, the story I was telling my friends is, you know, about getting caught in the hotel where two, um, he had actually um, abducted two prostitutes from that neighborhood. There were many there uh, and tortured them to death and, and beheaded them. And so uh, and then set fire to their torsos as he was leaving uh, with the heads which have not been found to this day. And that was what you were bumped with that you thought that were bowling balls. What I was, you know, what I thought I was bumped wow. with. Um, and so, you know, the word serial killer didn't exist in 1979 um, in, in, you know, our popular lexicon. It, it um, you know, law enforcement used it, but um, the media did not use that term. It wasn't uh, a term we were familiar with or I was familiar with. And, and, and so I had no idea, you know, what it was that I had bumped into. Eventually, I saw um, his photographs about uh, a year later when he went on trial. And I realized that's the guy that annoyed me from the elevator. But, uh, uh, you know, at that moment, it was like being bumped by a supernatural monster or something out of, you know, an Alfred Hitchcock movie because we had serial killers. We just didn't call them that and we didn't give them that, you know, concept that we, you know, anybody who watches CSI knows, you know, what a serial killer is and, you know, types of serial killers back then. Um, you know, that that wasn't the case. So it led me to this kind of fascination of, you know, with where do these creatures come from and, you know, what swamp did they come out of? Um, and why is it that, uh, you know, I had encountered one um, so randomly. That, yeah, that, so it's almost you know. like this topic picked you as much as you pick this topic. And what oh, is absolutely. It, what is it? Absolutely. You, what is it, Peter, that you think gives us such a fascination? I, I did an, I did a couple of interviews about Ted Bundy. I don't know. This is going back two or three years, and those have to be the most downloaded listened to, um, uh, watched over at YouTube. What is it about this topic that makes it so popular with people? Well, it's, you know, there um, are monsters, essentially. We've always been fascinated by, by monsters, and we've always given them, um, you know, these supernatural qualities. Uh, but here, suddenly, especially with Ted Bundy, um, we have a monster that emerges, um, you know, who's one of us. Ted Bundy in particular, uh, because, you know, Ted Bundy had these middle class aspirations. Um, you know, he studied in law school, although didn't do that well. But, you know, he could get into law school. Yeah. And uh, we've got a break coming up, uh, okay. Peter. When we come back from the break, we'll continue talking about Ted Bundy. And uh, he's one of, you just mentioned his name. It gives me chills. There's so many of these people. And we're going to talk tonight about serial killers. What makes a serial killer? as we continue our discussion with Dr. Peter Vronsky after this. You are listening to Jim Paris Live. All right, we are back this hour. We're talking about serial killers. 
Our special guest is Dr. Peter Vronsky. His latest book is Sons of Cain. And you can find that book and all of his other books over at Amazon. And uh, he does also have quite a few of these books available in Audible audio versions. And I know a lot of you ask about that uh, when we have guests on, if the books are available in the audio version. These are. There's also Kindle version I see here on these paperback hardcover. So a lot of different formats available for you. His last name is spelled V like and Victor, R-O-N-S-K-Y. You can find him over at Amazon, Dr. Peter Vronsky. Uh, Dr. Vronsky, just before the break, we're talking about uh, uh, Ted Bundy. And I'll tell you, you could take any like little segment of the Ted Bundy story and share it. And it's like enough to just blow your mind. And then when you put it all together, it you can't even comprehend it. Uh, for example, when I teach women self-defense, I tell the story about how he went to the same park twice in the same day, abducted, tortured, and murdered uh, a, a woman earlier in the day, then did it later, and used the same deal of like having a cast on, yes. and he had a, a, a canoe he needed help with. And it's like, wait a minute, how does a guy with a cast go go out in a canoe to begin with? But this guy was, he, he had, I, I told him, he's like a 10th degree black belt in killing. And this is a guy, he's a handsome guy. Uh, he was gregarious. People liked him. They trusted him right off. He did not look the part. You would not think that this could be a serial killer, and that's why he was so dangerous. Indeed, and he kind of defines this new generation of serial killers because, you know, prior to that, we kind of imagined serial killers as, as being these kind of, you know, migratory outsiders. Um, you know, there was they were on the margins of society, and yet here was this this you know shark-like monster of a killer who um, was popular, was, was you know, like, as I said, one of us with middle-class aspirations. Um, he worked as, a, you know, a volunteer in a uh, phone-in crisis center. He was very well-liked, a popular date, a popular um, guest at, at dinner parties. Um, and, and, you know, yet he was committing these horrific murders at the same time. Yeah, it seems like these serial killers, the one thing that seems to be consistent is they seem to, you know, bifurcate uh, their lives. They they have the, the public persona and then they have this evil side and they do a just a fantastic job of keeping those two things separate. Uh, you know, like uh, what was who was the killer uh, that had a family and, and everything, and, and this went on for decades. What was that? Well, the, that was my guy. Uh, well, a lot of guys, but certainly the guy in New York, Richard Cottingham, the, you know, Times Square torso ripper, um, as he was eventually dubbed, um, was raising three children, was married, um, had a home in New Jersey, and uh, worked uh, for over 16 years at the same company in Manhattan. He used to commute in Manhattan. And, uh, you know, between home and his workplace, he'd be committing these uh, horrific uh, murders along the way. Uh, you know, the BTK K killer in Cincinnati, um, he as well was raising a family. A, a lot of them, you know, have kids and a wife and, and a normal life. Not all. 
but there are um, you know a significant number who who do and do lead this kind of. I'm not sure if it's exactly a double life um, because you know when we say double life, we assume that you're kind of living authentically in two lives. Um, their home life was probably entirely fraudulent, and their real life was you know their killing obsession. Um, everything else was something that they would feign, something that they thought they had to do, and, and somehow a persona um, that that gave them a kind of a nest out of which they can operate. Yeah, a couple of other names uh, uh, that that tend to show up on lists as serial killers that seemed normal to people would be John Wayne Gacy who apparently was a beloved figure he he uh uh I know he's he's portrayed now as like like an evil clown in the movies that portrayed yes. but he was actually you know he entertained children and and dressed up as a clown though that was back in the days before a clown was a scary thing he he was That's uh, right. so yeah, he was a beloved figure. And then Jeffrey Dahmer was another one that was uh, also considered to be normal. And, and it almost seems like it's the, the narrative like, wow, who would have thought that this this guy was a serial killer? He he seemed just like a normal person. Uh, this is yes. the, the, what you hear. And it just it's like, really? And then we second guess it. We're like, OK, how could you live next door to this guy and not know? How could you be sitting next to him at work for all these years and not know? But it really is something that is hard to spot in someone, isn't it? It, 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 it is, um, you know, because they all have eccentricities to some extent. And, and, of course, people then with hindsight say, oh, you know, they give interpretations to this. But, you know, there are a lot of people with slight quirks and eccentricities who are not, you know, serial killers. I mean, we all have them in our families, you know. Uh, but um, then with hindsight, uh, suddenly these these quirks start having, you know, kinds of, you know, significance, uh, you know, whether it's loneliness or, um, you know, kind of preoccupation with um, hosing out their trunk of the car, um, you know, weird hours and, and, and so forth, you know, with hindsight, often these things in even families begin to realize, I mean, you know, um, in the case of Richard Cottingham, he wasn't coming home until very early in the morning. He had a late shift. He would work in Manhattan. And, and so, you know, his wife had all sorts of assumptions as to what he was doing, but certainly killing and torturing and abducting women would not have been one of them. Um, so, so these behaviors, there could be many explanations for them, and, um, you know, until you find, you know, as in the case of John Wayne Gacy, 30 corpses, um, you know, buried in the basement. Do they, do serial killers, do they get better over time? Do they, do they sort of, uh, use their experiences to get better and better at what they're doing? I mean, obviously when someone Absolutely. gets into dozens of killer killings, dozens of killings, I mean, they're obviously getting away with it. And, and then every time they do it, are they improving on their skill? It's um, a learning process, um, and and you often can recognize, you know, profilers can recognize 
um, a crime scene that an inexperienced killer or an inexperienced serial killer leaves behind. Um, you know, there's hesitation, there's mistakes made and so forth. So, um, you know, often you can apprehend someone who's going to be a serial killer, um, you know, judging by their pathology, their psychopathology. Uh, but because it's their early um, crime, they, they bungle it. There are a lot of... Especially these days, so-called wannabe would be killed serial killers, but they got caught early on. Yeah, being apprehended early in their career. Absolutely. Another break. When we come back, we're going to talk about profiling, and also why are all of these serial killers uh, white? Why are they all around the same age? All of that and more. We'll be back. You're listening to Jim Paris Live. All right, we are back. We are live on Sunday nights. Fascinating discussion tonight with Dr. Peter Vronsky. And just to give you a little bit more of a background on him, he's an author, a filmmaker, an investigative historian. And how lucky he splits his time between homes he lives in Toronto and also in Venice, Italy. Uh, I love Venice. I've been there twice and uh, one place I'd love to live. Uh, Peter, how often do you get to Venice? Is Peter still with us? And it's oh, there it's we go. a great place on, uh, unless you try to park your car. <laughs> <laughs> I know I know they've been trying to get rid of the tourists. There was going to be an alcohol ban that that might do it. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh how often do you do you get to uh, spend time in Venice? Um usually my summers I spend there. Oh, very good, very good. Yeah, uh, I I married a Venetian so uh, you know we we have a home there and my wife has family there, so... Wow, fantastic. That's my Maybe, Venice uh, connection. Next time I'm there, I'll email you. We can meet for a bowl of spaghetti. Yes, absolutely. Very good. I can show you around. I'll take you out into the countryside. And I got one of the little uh, the boat rides, the uh, gondola rides and all that oh, when yeah. I was there. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, so we've got a lot of people emailing questions, and I'm not going to open the phone lines up tonight. But, folks, if you have a question, jim at christianmoney.com. You know the drill. Put your city in the subject line and send that over. I'll go through those and, and uh, pick the best questions, jim at christianmoney.com. Um, I wanted to ask you about profiling, and I wanted to ask you about you know all of them being white and young. But I'll get to that in a minute. This is a question coming in that I think is interesting because you're in Canada. They want to know, is this serial killer phenomenon, is this unique to the United States largely? Of course, I know we have uh, Jack the Ripper. That's the you know infamous story from Europe. But is, is generally the idea or the phenomenon of this serial killing, is this unique to the United States? Um, what was unique was this surge we had in, you know, between 1970 and 1999. That was unique to the United States. But other countries have similar surges at different times. And um, almost every country has serial killers, um, you know, the, uh, in Russia, in South Africa, um, in China, um, in India. Every society has experienced this phenomenon. And one of your books is even about Canadian killers. Is that right? Yes, yeah. Um, I've written about Canadian serial killers, um, and and certainly, you know, our society here is, uh, you know, kind of 80% mirroring the United States. We have American media here, you know, we speak the same language. Um, so there are kind of cultural similarities 
um, out of which serial killers um, emerge. You know, seri- serial killing, as I say, is, is you know partly a learning process, partly a cultural, sociological, um, you know, psychopathological process where a number of factors come together to um, create these um, individuals at a very early age. You know, serial killers um, are formed somewhere between the ages of five to about 12, 14. Wow, that's I, fascinating I, that, that, yeah. that, that, that that happens that early. Uh, what about this? Is, is it a stereotype or is it true that, that they all seem to be white they all seem to be younger white men. I know one of well, your books is about serial killers that are women, but why does it always seem like that the Ted Bundy type age and and race and all of that seems to match up with so many of these, like, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer as an example, but there are others. Are, are they all white men, and is there a certain profile? We used to believe that there were predominantly white males. Um, today, um, you know, Somewhere, depending on which study you reference, somewhere between 50 to 60 percent of all serial killers are African-American or other races. What percentage Um, is that? Say that again. Over 50 percent, somewhere between 50 and 60 percent. So we're talking one in two. Um, And what it is, I I think it's, it's a question of reporting. Um, because, you know, homicides, whether they're serial homicides or just ordinary homicide, usually, you know, whites kill whites, um, blacks kill blacks and, and, and so forth. It's within one's uh, race, predominantly, not always. And so it's the same thing with serial killers. Um, and so, um, you know, serial killing in um, the African-American community was not as avidly reported by the media at that time. You know, it's one thing if you have in, you know, in in Detroit, say, um, a marginalized victim, a drug-addicted prostitute who's murdered um, in an African-American community, that is not going to be on page one. But when you have a uh, white college girl on campus murdered that's page one news yeah fair enough that that makes so much sense and i never really thought about that that the media you know the the victimology is what is going to cover the media coverage and then of course that's right you know we we don't know uh you know how many uh minorities or people living you know uh marginal lifestyles like prostitutes and so forth um in in a lot of cases maybe it's never even discovered that it was a serial killer, that these are just all looked at as individual crimes and the dots are never connected. Is that right? Exactly. You know, and and of course, um, often marginalized communities are um, under policed in terms of uh, kind of protective services that we expect of police. Um, uh, you know, that's more towards the middle classes, not towards those in, in, impoverished. So there you have kind of a heavy enforcement-oriented ori- policing, uh, but investigative um, kind of community service policing that's, that's, that's still, even today, 
um, not as highly uh, developed or not really a, a priority. Um, so those things combined, you know, the most victims of serial killers are marginalized in one way or another, um, either by their ethnicity, um, their elderly often, their homeless, their runaway kids, um, their, you know, street prostitutes, drug addicts, um, you know, their societies, um, you know, disposable people. And in they're targeted and, because it would be less likely that someone would investigate their murder as thoroughly as, you know, like you said, a, a white college girl. And that is one of the ways that serial killers get away with this. Well, in one way, in another way also, it encourages serial killers as well. Um, the, you know, that is, uh, you know, we often think of, of serial killers kind of um, being rejects of society. In fact, they they kind of reflect the values of a society. And, and, and so serial killers um, often um, justify society's norms for the victims that they, they choose. Oh, wow. Um, That's know, interesting. So, so they're, they're, they're in their moral, in their disturbed moral, uh, you know, processing, they're thinking, well, it's okay that I killed this person because they are whatever, a prostitute, Precisely. drug addict or whatever. Very, very Precisely. interesting. Um, now, what do you think happened? I know I, this is a horrible term to use, but I've heard it used many times. I've read it many times, so I'm not the first one to coin the phrase, but there was this so-called golden age of the serial killer, and you sort of gave a, a time window there. But but some yes. speculate, like, well, what has happened? So, I mean, uh, you know, thank God we're out of that, that period, but is it the advent of social media and the Internet that has given us better tools to expose people? that are dangerous why have we seen a drop-off and we don't really see uh the big uh you know scares anymore the front page stories of serial killers in this day and age well, um, we're hoping that we've gotten better at catching them. Um, the other thing, of course, is, is homicide has dramatically dropped in the United States, uh, you know, since the mid-1990s. And, and so parallel to just general drops in homicide rates, um, there has been also a decline in the number of serial killers being apprehended. Um, and, and you know, it's harder being a serial killer these days when you consider, uh, you know, cell phones and, and credit card traces. Oh, right, that right, one right. So it's, yeah, it's a different world. And uh, we'll talk more about DNA. that when we get back. Yeah, DNA. We're going to talk, too, about the uh, Golden State Killer when we come back and DNA and modern technology and how that might be helping to curb uh, this whole matter of serial killing. We'll take a break. We'll be back. You are listening to Jim Paris Live. All right, we are back. Our final segment with Dr. Peter Vronsky as we continue our discussion talking about serial killers. And again, all of his books are up at Amazon.com. His name is spelled Vronsky, V like in Victor, R-O-N-S-K-Y, Peter Vronsky. There's a huge page on Amazon with all of his books. It goes several pages. He, What a prolific author. And a lot of these books are available uh, in multiple formats, including audio, including Kindle, including paperback and hardcover. So check out his page over at Amazon.com. Uh, Dr. Vronsky, talk, if you will, about 
what's going on with the modern technology. I have to tell you, I was absolutely fascinated and floored at how they caught the Golden State Killer by using familial yes. DNA. They, they created like a, a pool of 20,000 possibilities from familial DNA and then narrowed it down to this guy. And I thought, man, th this, this is almost, it's not as good as predicting the crime before it happens, but it's almost as good if you have this kind of technology. All sorts of technologies are now um, available. And, and, of course, you know, we're all familiar with DNA technology. But what we don't realize, of course, is that um, it's now DNA tests have become much more sensitive. So, for example, evidence that was tested for DNA, um, say, in the year 2000, if it's still carefully preserved in 2018, it could yield evidence from the same sample. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we just are better now at extracting it and, and getting better. Um, you also have, of course, um, consumers using DNA to track their ancestries. So certainly in the case of, um, you know, often the problem is, is that to collect DNA from somebody who's a suspect um, but has never been convicted and, and um, you know, is out in the freedom, you need probable cause. You need to serve them with a search warrant. Um, and so the strategy that was used in the case of, um, you know, the Golden State uh, killer was that they began to s look at that individual's, that suspect's relatives. Um, and, of course, because the relatives are not being, you know, prosecuted or investigated, the test for probable cause is much lower in that case. Um, and, and so if the DNA um, on a victim matches uh, the DNA of the son of or the brother of or the father of daughter and so forth, a relative of the suspect – now you have probable cause. Now you can serve that search warrant um, on the actual individual and, and get that 100% confirmation. All right. So, so what they did uh, with the Golden State uh, killer, I believe they like went through his garbage or something. Is that how they got his DNA? Yeah, somebody uh, in his family, as I understand the the, the case, um, somebody in his family had used one of those Ancestry.com, you know, find your relatives, uh, right. find out where you came from. But how they got uh, his personal DNA, DNA, how they got his personal DNA to match it up, I believe. Oh, later, the, yeah, right, later than like they... Through his garbage, I believe. Exactly. Later they had, but they did it, of course, under a judge's order. Okay, very good. I, so, I, I wasn't yeah. aware of, of how that worked when you put the garbage out at the curb, if that is also well, requires Well, in the a, case uh, of actually garbage being out in the curb, I, I understand that that actually is not even covered by a search warrant. So if, if, yeah. if that's where they got his DNA, then they wouldn't have even needed a search warrant in that case. What do you say about H.H. Uh, H. Holmes? I, I just read uh, uh, one of your blog posts here, and I'll use the uh, radio-friendly term BS so that we don't get in trouble. Uh, yeah. with the radio regulators. <laughs> uh, but but that's kind of your take on H.H. H. Holmes. Now, this is one where yep. I think there's like a movie being made. There was a big, uh, what was that's it, right. A&E? There was a big series about it. Yes. Uh, yeah. What's, what's you know. your take on that? 
Well, he's a serial killer, but he's a very small serial killer. Um, you know, there's a lot of mythology um, about H.H. H. Holmes, starting from, uh, you know, his uh, murder castle, which wasn't a murder castle at all, right, to the number of victims. Um, you know, he was convicted and 100 uh, percent definitively linked to four murders. Um other than that, H.H. Um, H. Holmes is not even our first serial killer. Um, I describe in Sons of Cain um, multiples of serial killers uh, in decades prior to to H.H. H. Holmes. Um, and, and, of course, the most recent twist um, on, on that whole story is, is that, you know, Jack the Ripper uh, was H.H. H. Holmes, who, you know, traveled to London to commit these, these crimes that, that are in no way similar to anything that even H.H. H. Yeah, Holmes they was seem like they jumped the, doing. They jumped the shark with, with that claim. Uh, that was yeah. a real stretch, but I, I think that was, uh, you know, purely to try to, you know, keep people's interest uh, in, in that story. I believe it was a was yeah. a, like a living relative of H.H. Yes. H. Holmes who yes. uh, began to first, you know, write about it like a grandson or a great grandson. Yes. Yeah. And 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 of course, you know, the, the greatest uh, still, you know, cold case in serial killing history remains, you know, Jack the Ripper. So uh, when you, you know, when you jack the two things together now, H.H. H. Holmes, plus you've got Jack the Ripper. Now you're talking TV series. Right? Yeah. Now, I don't know so, if you get in, involved in the the whole Internet side of all this, because we've had people on. They talk about uh, Jack the Ripper and, and some of these other serial killers. And, and they tell me that there are like literally entire websites and discussion groups. They say there's something called uh, a, a, a rip, ripperologist, somebody who is yes. like, tell, tell me about those people. And is this like, has this become a hobby for people well, it's it's a, it's 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 a passion that people have um, for this great mystery of who might he be, um, and so ripperologists, um, you, you know, they know inside out, um, you know, the sequence of events, the chronology, the victimology, um, the geography of uh, of. Um, uh, you know these crimes, which which uh, you know there weren't that many. There's like five or six, depending whether you accept you know a sixth victim, um, you know the canonical as canonical victims or or, or not. Um, and of course, the, usually it's somehow to link Jack the Ripper to some prominent figure in either the British aristocracy or in the arts. Um, uh, you know, it's very rarely who Jack the Ripper probably was. And Jack the Ripper um, was not a surgeon. He wasn't a doctor. He wasn't an artist. He wasn't an aristocrat. He was probably a schlub living in that same neighborhood, um, which he was familiar with. Um, he um, was, you know, no, probably very much a loner, um, you know, the way he attacked those women, it's unlikely that this was, you know, one of our suave Ted Bundy type of serial killers. Um, 
and he lived and died um, anonymously. So um, it's uh, I, we don't None even of that know makes if he wrote a, the letters. That doesn't make an exciting movie, you know? though. <laughs> that, no, that and, and and here's the other thing: what what makes Jack the Ripper exciting is, of course, he wrote all those letters. We think, but there's no evidence whatsoever that they were written by Jack the Ripper. For all we know, could have been written by a journalist, um, you know, in London. You know, there was a whole newspaper war around covering the. Whitechapel murders, as, as those Jack the Ripper yeah, are. Yeah, fascinating. Mm-hmm. Now, I had heard on a recent interview you did that this is the Sons of Cain. This is it. You're not going to do any more books on serial killers. Is that true, and, and why? Well, I, I thought um, um, until um, kind of I was returned back to my beginning as I was finishing Sons of Cain, thinking it was my last book, um, The Daughter of one of the victims who was beheaded uh, in that incident that I had walked through, contacted me and asked me if I would help her um, interview the serial killer to locate her mother's head, which she would like to reunite with her mother's torso buried on Hart Island in New York, which is New York's Potter's Field. Over a million Amer- um, New Yorkers, unwanted and unidentified New Yorkers, are buried on this island of the dead in, in the Bronx River. Wow. And, and, and so um, she befriended the serial killer, Richard Cottingham, and um, asked him to um, meet with me, and and that's what I've been doing. Um, and and I'm happy to say that as of last week, um, the NYPD cold case squad has um, started looking into this location. We've, you know, according to his, if he's not lying, you know, that's always a possibility, but. Um, according to what he's telling us, I think we've pinpointed um, find the mother's the remains, which would be fantastic, and that's going to be a, another book. The kind of the that's story what I'm working your... on right now. That's wow. right in the wow. middle. So of you can't get away from this. You you think you no. can get away from this, but it's going to mm. probably keep coming back. You know, so this is how it well, is. Sons yeah. of Cain. We're out of time, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. The book is Sons of Cain. Check. Tear down this wall. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. I'm not a crook. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan. Source for the latest news on money, politics, prophecy, and preparedness. And now your host, the editor-in-chief of ChristianMoney.com and the author of more than 30 books, Jim Paris. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our guest segment. I want to set this up. Um, if you are somebody that is fascinated with serial killers, I personally am. And that's partly because I teach self-defense classes and I teach women how to be safe. And I'm super interested in these people because of their minds and how they 
trick people into going with them like Ted Bundy did and some of the tactics that they use. And the Golden State Killer is one of the most unique cases in American history in terms of serial killers. There's so much that is different about this case. And I want to set this up and then we'll bring in our guest here in just a moment. The Golden State Killer is a serial killer, serial rapist and burglar who committed at least 13 murders, more than 50 rapes and over 100 burglaries in California from 1974 to 1986. He is also believed to be responsible for at least three crime, sp crime sprees throughout California, each of which spawned a different nickname in the press before it became evident that they were committed by the same person. And it, there's so much about this case that is unique, including how they caught the guy, which we're going to get into that tonight, including how he took a break uh, from killing, uh, which is unheard of among serial killers. Um, and and uh, just the large area that he covered, which is, again, unique among serial killers. And joining us tonight is co-author of the book, really the book of record on this. And he's been with us uh, two times before, is our good friend Keith Comos. Uh, the book is The Case Files of the Golden State Killer, East Area Rapist. Keith, good to have you back with us, sir. Hey, Jim, great to talk to you again. You know, th this whole issue of serial killers is becoming really popular. My daughter was telling me uh, about how her and her friends are all fascinated in watching this Ted Bundy series that is on Netflix. And I was just wondering, with your books being so successful, is there any talk of anything developing in that realm for you, uh, this becoming some kind of a, a larger presentation by way of a documentary? There have been um, some people approach us, um, some talks going on. Uh, no matter what we would do going forward, it's a huge undertaking. And when it comes to the Golden State Killer, we're stuck in this holding pattern of waiting to see how the trial will go. And it's a huge trial, 26 charges. And uh, really, it's hard to know what's going to be at the end of it. Um, but I I'm glad to see that there's such interest in these sorts of things. And like you were saying, the self-defense classes, that should be a required course for, for anybody in teaching the awareness and, and, and everything so that people can stay safe out there. Because as we're learning... Um, through all these cold cases being solved, through the forensic genealogy and everything, there are a lot of uh, bad people out there, and they're the type of people that you would never expect. So it's good to be safe. Well, one of the things when we teach children self-defense, I, I teach martial arts, have a martial arts school. When we, when we teach children self-defense, we, we tell them, don't look for someone that is, you know, scary, like the so-called stranger danger. That was how they used to teach kids. And so kids were looking for someone like with a big black top hat and a trench coat. But adults do the same thing, too. And I found myself today, I was looking at this case again, and I looked at uh, one of the, the younger pictures um, of D'Angelo in his police officer's uniform. And he was like a clean cut, normal looking guy that you you would never think of that guy looking at him at that time as being somebody that was anything other than just an upstanding young police officer. And you're taught as a kid to trust police officers. And obviously there are people in all walks of life and all professions that can turn out to be some, some bad people. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and just, you know, the physical appearance in so many of these uh, cases, like Ted Bundy, for example, uh, you know, handsome guy, charming and used all the tricks in the book, including uh, fake casts. And he had uh, crutches and, you know, every uh, strategy you could use to trick someone into, you know, getting into the car, helping him and, and those kinds of things. And uh, man, I'll tell you, uh, I, I tell my students Ted Bundy was like a 10th degree black belt in serial killing. I mean, the stuff that he that he did uh, and almost all of his victims pretty much willingly went with him, which is just unbelievable, especially in areas where they were warned that things were going on and to be on your guard. And yet they would never have thought, you know, that it was him. Now, in this case, um, set this up for us, because a few of the things, obviously, people uh, might be tuning in who aren't, who aren't familiar with this case. And for those that, that don't know it, in our archives, we have two prior interviews with Keith Comos, which gets into the whole long story. But those shows have commercials in them. This show is commercial free, so we'll get a better opportunity to kind of set this up. So Keith, maybe start by just giving us the thumbnail a sketch of, you know, when this started, um, how long it took place and, and how many crimes uh, and the nature of the crimes that we know of that were committed by this guy. Sure. The first major confirmed series that this offender is responsible for started in Visalia, California, which is in the central part of the state in 1973 and 1974. He started out there as a peeper and as a burglar who would enter unoccupied homes, tear the place apart, cause minor damage, and spend a lot of time rearranging the undergarments of the women and the teenage girls who lived in the homes. So there was a sexual undertone to these, what they were calling nuisance burglaries, because there weren't a lot of things of value taken. Uh, he was called the Visalia Ransacker during this phase. The Ransacker escalated, and he began stalking certain victims and focusing in on them, and in 1975, he escalated to kidnapping or attempting to kidnap a teenage girl from her home in the middle of the night. Her father woke up as this was happening, and he went outside just as the ransacker was dragging this girl away. And the ransacker dropped the girl, shot the father to death, even though he could have gotten away. Um, it was almost a retaliatory murder. And then he ran off into the night. The victim's name, the man who was shot, was Claude Snelling. He was a professor at the local college and very involved in his church and community. And the town really felt the loss. Amazingly, the ransacker continued stalking young women in this small town of Visalia, uh, so much so that he became predictable. And a police officer cornered him during a stakeout, and the ransacker shot at the police officer and escaped. Luckily, the police officer was relatively unharmed. Then about six months later, 200 miles away, a home invasion rapist began targeting the Sacramento area because this guy's MO had some distinctive similarities and there were some radical differences in uh, physical description. Police didn't know that this was the same guy that had operated in Visalia. The offender was now more widely known and he became called the East Area Rapist. I mean, he had a, a terrifying way of operating. He'd enter an unoccupied home in the middle of the night. He'd awaken his victim with a flashlight either lone females or, or later on couples. He'd point a gun at them, force the woman to tie the man up with shoelaces if a man was present. He'd issue threats, but he'd lull them into a false sense of security by saying, I only want food and money. If you cooperate, I won't hurt you. And they, they had little choice but to cooperate. He'd tie the woman's wrist behind her back very tightly, 
uh, so that it cut off circulation. He'd retie the man's wrists very tightly. Then he'd leave them and he'd begin rummaging through the house and ransacking it. He'd put dishes on their backs from their own kitchen to make sure that he could hear them from another part of the house if they tried to move. Eventually, he'd tell the female that he couldn't find her purse or something like that. He'd lead her out of the room and then he'd sexually assault her. And the attacks would go on for hours. He would stay in the home. He'd eat their food. He'd um, take some of their cash and personal jewelry. He'd take the wedding rings right off of their fingers. And he always wore masks. He always wore gloves. He disguised his voice. No one had any idea who this guy was. And the East Area Rapist crimes went from 1976 to 1979. Then a similar crime series began in disparate parts of South uh, Southern California, which is over 300 miles away from Sacramento. The crimes were very similar to East Area Rapist crimes, only now the perpetrator was killing his victims at the end uh, um, of the attack. He murdered couples and lone women near Santa Barbara, Ventura County, Irvine, and an area of Orange County called Dana Point. The murders were more sporadic, and they went on from 1979 to 1981. Then there was a five-year gap with no known crimes at all, which, as you mentioned, is very atypical for this type of offender. And then a final murder of a lone female in Irvine in 1986. Then there was almost nothing. The only indication that he was still even alive was that he would call former victims and occasionally taunt them. This case was frustrating. Um, It stayed unsolved for decades. And the victims who survived him were left living in fear, living without any answers or any resolution. There were thousands of small clues because there were so many offenses, but no one could make any of the puzzle pieces fit. The offender was careful enough to leave misleading clues, issue misleading statements to victims. There was no real way to easily piece together anything about his identity. He never left an identifiable fingerprint. He never made a major mistake. And he never even entered the wrong house at the wrong time and and got shot by a a homeowner that was at the ready. Uh, Over 40 years of investigation by hundreds of different law enforcement officials over the years, and no one was even close to solving this. But as as we talked about last time, through the miracle of DNA science, the availability of open source genealogical DNA, and the innovation and persistence of several law enforcement officials and civilians, uh, detectives were able to match the unknown killer's DNA sample the distant relatives build out, build out a family tree that included thousands of names and use investigative and scientific methods to finally narrow it down to one person. Yeah, and this is this is also what makes this case unique. Has that ever been done before, this idea of the familial DNA um, as the way to find a serial killer? It kind of has. Um, the The... Um, the way that he was identified, familial DNA searches had already been used in California. Um, there was a case called the Grim Sleeper case, uh, but this was sort of a different method that had never really quite been done before uh, using a, a different type of DNA marker that really had only been available uh, for about five years or so at the time that it was used. Um, and it could trace uh, people out much further than had ever been done before. And it was mostly used for ancestry and uh, family tree type stuff. But um, until recently, if a cold case investigator had a DNA sample from a crime scene, they had to hope that the perpetrator or close family member had committed a crime before and had their DNA uploaded into an FBI DNA repository system called CODIS 
or one of the state-run databases. Uh, not anymore now that a DNA sample can lead to the creation of an entire family tree um, with, this, with these new markers that are being used and the identification of a distant relative. It's really not as simple as running through a database, of course. Um, distant relatives are identified through matches. It, it builds out. One of the initial worries about using this, and this is where this case was is one of the first, um, is that when this case goes to trial, this method itself will be put on trial because it hasn't been used, hasn't been used extensively even now um, since the floodgates have opened. But the longer this trial, uh, this particular trial takes, the less likely um, this will be a hang-up in trial. In Washington State, a suspect named William Earl Talbot was identified through this method after the Golden State Killer was identified. And his case just sailed through the court system and reached a conviction without this method being challenged at all. Isn't it? Um, isn't the case? However, isn't, there is a new problem. Go ahead. Oh, there is a new problem. Um, since this has come up last time we talked, and that's uh, there are concerns that this, met, uh, this method in the public sphere, and those concerns have led to actions that have reduced its usefulness. Um, up until recently, this method has primarily been used on murder cases that were very old. There was a current assault case, though, um, not a murder case, and it was current, where the perpetrator was identified through this method. And now there was a concern that this, quote, that, quote lesser and lesser crimes um, would start to be submitted to this process. And it raised a lot of privacy concerns. The result was that the website that hosted this open source genealogical DNA data that law enforcement was using, they responded by requiring users to now opt in before law enforcement can use their data. Hmm. And it's drastically reduced the amount of data that law enforcement has access to um, on these plat on these platforms, and we went from cases being solved every month to just a few handfuls of cases being solved now. So one of the things um, I hope to do tonight, actually, is, is get the word out that that people who believe in this method and don't have the privacy concerns and whatnot make sure that they opt in on these platforms. Uh, like GED matches, the GED matches, one of them. The Would that be ones. like if it's you a developing situation. if you order the the um, DNA? Uh, like, do you want to find out? I've never done it, but I've thought about it. Maybe this Christmas, my wife and I will order ours because we've talked about it. Where you can find out where your family ancestry is from. So I order that and then it would be in that process of buying that kit that I would give them permission to include myself in the database. Is is that what you're saying? It depends on, on where you get it from. More private companies like Ancestry, uh, they don't allow law enforcement access to their database, basically. Um, there have been subpoenas and whatnot that they have responded to and some that they haven't, um, but they typically don't. Uh, one of the the uh, basically you have to upload your genetic markers into one of the public uh, websites, not one of the private ones. And I don't have a comprehensive list on which is which. Um, it's important to read the terms uh, before. Um, I'm kind of a, a big privacy guy anyway. It's important to read terms when we start sending our genetic material places. Um, but basically, if you're doing one of those basic tests. It won't automatically opt you in. If there's an option to opt in, um, I would encourage people to do it because a lot of good has been done through. Yeah, I would. I would imagine. Now, getting back to this, what I wanted to ask you was, 
this whole matter of of maybe this method would be challenged in the court. I want to make sure I understand this right. So if I understand this correctly, what has happened is it's still a needle in a haystack, but by using this method, the haystack gets really small. It's still a haystack and there's still a needle in a haystack, but once they're able to create a pool of, let's say, 10,000 people compared to like, you know, 300 million people that live in the U.S., they're able to, within that pool, start eliminating people until they get down to the final guy. And then they still have to have his personal DNA ultimately match. It's not just that, hey, there are 10,000 suspects and we just picked one of these out of here who seemed the most likely. It's not just guilt by association of DNA. It's the actual hit of his DNA personally matching up with the crime scene. Is Am I understanding that right? That's correct. They identify a viable suspect. In some cases, they go to this suspect and they ask for a sample. In others, they may feel more strongly about this individual being a uh, the the potential offender, and they'll they'll grab DNA through a legal method, like a discarded cup or discarded trash or something like that. And they'll they'll need a stronger match before they can arrest the suspect. And I guess that's what they did in this case. They went to his trash. Isn't that right? They did. He he ran an errand at, I think it was Hobby Lobby, and they grabbed some DNA off of his hand, uh, door handle, some touch DNA. I think it was something like a 67% match, and then they grabbed some trash, which was a 100% match. Hmm. And that's how they identified him and arrested him. Now, before, it was so interesting having you with us on the two different appearances, uh, because one of them, of course, was before they got him, and then the other one was after. And I wanted to ask you in terms of, you know, the profiling that the theories that were there about who this guy could have been, there were a lot of different ideas like that he could have been a traveling salesperson because of the large area. Tell us what some of the theories were and ultimately it turns out, you know, he was a police officer. Uh, tell us what might have been off in those possible profiles uh, compared to what we ultimately found out. If it, it turns out that, of course, this alleged this guy who's allegedly, you know, the, the killer is, in fact, the killer. There were a lot of uh, potential occupations. There were some victims that were identified through the, the water company or that back-to-back victims worked for the water company and people thought, well, maybe he had some sort of association with that. Um, there were, were people who thought maybe he worked for the phone company um, because there were different people with ties to the phone company. Some victims worked at the same office in Sacramento. Um, there were people who thought maybe he had ties to education and government or nursing because he could find he, some of his, there were a lot of ties to, to some of these different professions. The interesting one, of course, that turned out to be correct was there were signs that he was a police officer. In 1976, at an early attack in Sacramento, he actually lost control of a scene and he instinctively yelled freeze, just like an officer would. Uh, and the gun he produced at that crime, and he hadn't produced a gun at, at one of these uh, East Area Rapist crimes yet, 
uh, as things were getting out of hand, it looked like an off-duty officer's weapon. And he wore what could have been a police officer's belt. And victims hadn't got that great of a look at him. Um, so this, these were kind of clues that perhaps he was a police officer. Uh, in one of the first tax, uh, attacks in Contra Costa County, which was, uh, I guess, October 1978 or so, it appeared that he had left a badge of some sort. It was a type used by security guards or maybe small-town police programs or special outfits. And the fact that he knew about forensic methods, the rules of evidence, statutes of limitations, how to escape dragnets, how to confuse tracking dogs, how to plant misleading clues, it pointed to somebody who was very forensically aware. And he never left any fingerprints or anything identifiable. So there were a lot of theories about, um, did this guy have military experience? Was he an enthusiast? Was he a former police officer? Was he a current one? Did he have ties to the, the bases? Because Sacramento had a lot of military bases in the area. And he was described as have, walking with a military bearing in some cases and, and whatnot. So there were theories all over the place. And part of that was because he left so many clues. He, he told some victims, oh, I was kicked out of the Air Force. Um, and, of course, it was a big Vietnam era. And a lot of people had ties to the military at that point. So that particular theory didn't really narrow the suspect pool down very much. There were so many different theories. Uh, everybody looked at the case a different way, uh, professionals and amateurs alike. And it, it's interesting to actually go back through it now and see these signs that he was a police officer and whatnot. Um, if D'Angelo ends up being convicted for these crimes, and those were some of the clues that really uh, resonated more than others. There was one other interesting clue, and this came up um, in an L.A. Times piece. Uh, they ran a piece this year based around an exclusive interview with a woman that D'Angelo was engaged to before the known crime spree started. The woman's name is Bonnie, which was actually a clue before the case was solved because there was one victim who was being attacked but the, the perpetrator stopped for a little while, and he began weeping and crying and saying, Bonnie, I hate you. He'd done this at some uh, the same thing at some other crimes, but at those crimes he had said, Mommy, and stuff like, Mommy, I'm scared. Mommy is scared when this is on the news. But this victim was sure that he had said Bonnie. Huh. Investigators weren't sure if this was a legitimate clue or not, but it turns out D'Angelo was engaged to a woman named Bonnie. In the L.A. Times piece, this is where they stepped in. A reporter named Paige St. John got an exclusive interview with uh, Bonnie for the L.A. Times. And uh, the series is called Man in the Window. And uh, what Bonnie revealed was that D'Angelo was a thrill seeker. He uh, trespassed on corporate property to hunt. He could be cruel to dogs. Uh, and this uh, this was more telling. Uh, another clue Um during intercourse with her, he would often back away, walk around the room, and return. Uh, this was something peculiar that the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer did as well. Uh, the biggest revelation was that after they were engaged, he pushed her to cheat on a college test, and she broke the engagement. At night after that, he went to her bedroom window, held her at gunpoint, and attempted to kidnap her. And she was able to summon her father, who spent uh, a couple hours calming down D'Angelo, and convincing him to leave without further incident. Again, this was before the known crime spree. Uh, the police weren't involved. It's a fascinating insight to the guy's thought process. Obviously, uh, Bonnie wouldn't have any way of knowing uh, 
that he would become uh, a serial offender, that these were even clues to the serial offender because there were thousands of different clues. Nobody knew which ones were true or not because he was throwing red herrings everywhere. Uh, there was really uh, no way, nobody had enough puzzle pieces to put it all together. But uh, there were some signs that he was a police officer, and that was a common theory um, among some people, but it was impossible to prove uh, for sure. Now, there was a several year uh, break in, in the attacks, and this is another unusual feature of, of this particular case. Um, do, do we now have any more of a theory why there was a break? Because that's not typical, as we talked about in the open. We have a really good theory now. Uh, if D'Angelo ends up being uh, convicted of the Golden State Killer crimes, um, his last, his second to last known attack was around uh, the time that D'Angelo's wife was having their first baby. It's not really known if fatherhood is what brought a stop to these killings or not, but the, the attack before the gap was right around the time that they were having their first baby. Uh, the Golden State Killer committed one more murder five years after that, and that attack was again situated around the time they were that he was about to become a father hmm. uh, with their second child. It's a very curious correlation here. Um, there aren't any known events after that. Uh, they've got two kids on their hands. D'Angelo is no longer a police officer. Um, so he doesn't have access to whatever information he might have been getting. He maybe doesn't have an excuse to go out at random times anymore. Um, D'Angelo had a third child several years later, but there aren't any known incidents surrounding that one other than he, uh, the Golden State Killer made a mysterious phone call to a former rape victim. And the, the, the victim told the police she was sure that it was her attacker who called her, and he had been silent on the phone for a little while. Um, and that happened around the time that he was becoming a father for the third time. So we're looking at changing circumstances and possibly triggers of, of some kind. Now, of course, obviously no one, his family, wife, kids, nobody's responsible in any way. And these are just psychological factors or maybe even coincidences that are at play here. There's one other thing that happened in the middle of the gap, um, and that is... This is actually pretty wild. In March 1983, D'Angelo was in a parking lot near Sacramento in the afternoon, and he got into an altercation with somebody. D'Angelo claimed that all he did was honk at a motorist uh, in a parking lot, and the guy came over and attacked him. But supposedly some heated words were exchanged beforehand. And keep in mind, this is two years into the, the break and three years before the break ended. Um, it happened during that apparent uh, five-year gap. So apparently this other motorist grabbed D'Angelo behind the neck with both hands uh, during their argument and rammed his head into D'Angelo's face, like a move from a Hollywood action scene. Yeah, headbutt. Then D'Angelo, yeah, exactly. Uh, D'Angelo, then, the guy accused of bashing people's faces in with logs and wrenches, keep in mind, had the audacity to sue this guy. He wanted, I think, um, $25,000 claiming that he had suffered a strained neck and loose teeth. And it's a disgusting irony because three years later, the Golden State Killer hit a girl in the face so hard that she swallowed her own teeth. And DNA at that scene matches D'Angelo exactly. So by the time the, this lawsuit went to court, the guy that D'Angelo, um, the guy that hit D'Angelo was unavailable because he was a French citizen and he had gone back overseas. 
And the court awarded D'Angelo, um, I think a few thousand dollars, which he was never actually able to collect because the court didn't have jurisdiction over the guy that um, he had had the altercation with. Hmm. What an irony that that would happen. And the other thing, yeah. too, the, the other thing, too, that I, I found so fascinating about this case were, were the phone calls. So the last crime takes place, if I understand it, like in 1986. But yet he makes phone calls, according to uh, what I have here, he made a phone call as late as 2001. And you think to yourself. And now that everybody's comparing notes, there was one as late as 2017. Really? So he, yeah. And the 2001 call was interesting because it, it appeared that he would be triggered by things in the news. And what had happened in 2001 was that DNA had tied his Southern California crimes to his Northern California crimes in April of 2001. That news broke. Before then, people didn't, weren't even sure that these crimes were for, for uh, the same guy. He was that careful as far as how far he was offending and, and how, changing just enough. But the news broke, and then I think less than 48 hours later, he called a former victim, and she was sure that it was him. And it, it appeared that some of these later uh, news stories had been triggering him as well. Now, most of the phone calls that happened after that point were the hang-up variety, where somebody would call, hang up, somebody would call, just sit there, maybe breathing softly. And he would do that to a lot of his victims before he would attack them way back in the 70s. And then former victims were starting to get these calls again. Victims who would go out and advocate for this case and share uh, information. Um, some of them were getting these types of calls. Uh, and and the, the interesting thing is before a lot of this news broke, uh, people didn't know that that was part of his MO. So nobody could be faking that they were, oh, I'm going to just be a, a nasty person and play this joke on this poor person, because that part of his M.O. wasn't publicized until fairly recently. Wow. It's just fascinating. And he was arrested in um, the Angela was arrested in April of 2018. There's not a lot in the news about like what's going on with the case. I did some, you know, Google searching this week and all that. And there, you know, a little bit of uh, information here and there. But is it basically just sort of in the discovery phase and there's not really a trial date set or any of that? I mean, he's claiming he's innocent, I'm assuming, and there's not going to be a plea bargain. He's trying to go to trial and, and get away with it. I it appears that way. So little has happened. I could probably catch you up in a couple minutes. Um, uh, let's see. The public first saw D'Angelo a couple days after the arrest. Uh, he was in a wheelchair at that point, heavily sedated for that appearance. Um, the DA then fought and won for the right to take additional DNA samples and all over body pictures to compare to witness descriptions. Uh, then the defense began struggling um, to ban cameras from the courtroom and media coverage in general, which they've not been successful with. They claim it would influence witnesses, prospective jurors, and hamper ongoing investigations. But the judges have really issued no restrictions, um, and it's been a fairly open process. There's not a lot of publicity because there hasn't been a lot to talk about yet. 
there are a litany of charges against this guy now. And uh, the amazing thing is, is they don't even begin to encompass everything that the police have tied to him at this point. Um, he's being charged with uh, the known homicide offenses, of course. There's 13 of those, many of which contain DNA that uh, is is matching uh, his profile. Five of the 13 murders don't have DNA, so that, those won't be as cut and dry. Uh, then the DAs who had the Easteria rapist activity in their areas looked long and hard at some of the other crimes that uh, the, the Golden State Killer has been tied to. Most of them were uh, part of that series of 50 home invasion rapes that took place in Northern California between 1976 and 1979. Uh, only three of them had evidence saved that could be tested for DNA. All three matched the, the profile that matches D'Angelo. The problem with these was that the crime, when the crimes were committed, the statute of limitations for rape was only six years. Uh, past 1985 or so, no one could have been prosecuted for any of the East Area rapist crimes where there was no uh, capital offense. So this is where the prosecutors got creative, and they found that the legal window for prosecution had not run out on a violent crime called kidnapping with attempt to rob. And uh, this meant that in any of the cases where the East Area rapist forcibly moved a victim and stole something or intended to steal something, he could be charged. Part of, part of his M.O., of course, was tying victims up, moving them through the house, and stealing cash and personal jewelry. The DAs chose 13 of their strongest kidnap with intent to rob cases, and they charged D'Angelo with them. So now he's facing a total of 26 crimes. So he's... Wow, it's amazing when you think about all the statute of limitations. And, uh, you know, I went to law school. I know why those are there, but it still seems unfair that he could get away with those some of those rape cases because they were so old. But that's just how the law works. Have there been any um, individual victims that once it became public that it was Joseph James D'Angelo allegedly is the Golden State Killer. So that goes public. Are there any victim accounts where they said, uh, oh, my God, well, I that was my neighbor or that was a guy that I saw at the hospital all the time. He was a police officer, somebody who kind of made that connection that someone that they had known, they knew it was him. Um, but because he had disguised uh, he, did he let them all see him fully, uh, his face and everything when he was attacking them? Or was it that some of them didn't actually physically get to see him at the time? He did everything he could to not let people look at him, even in a mask. He would shine the lights on their faces. He would blindfold them. He would say, if you look at me, I'll kill you. Right. Uh, now, some victims did get to see him in a masked state. When... He was identified, and this hit the news. Uh, I have not heard of any uh, victim uh, of the canonical Golden State Killer crime say, oh, I know this guy from somewhere. Some have said, oh, I have a relative that may recognize his voice, um, something like that. But nobody said, oh, he was my gardener or something like that. Hmm. Um, it's it, Which was to be expected. One of his... Uh, one of the, the reasons he stayed free was that he was attacking strangers, people who could not identify him. And another thing he was doing, he was attacking people in the next town over from where he operated as a police officer. He worked as a police officer in a town called Exeter, 
which is a few miles outside of Visalia. And he worked as a police officer in, uh, oh, I'm blanking on Auburn, uh, which is in the far northeast part of Sacramento, several miles away. So he was commuting a ways to commit these crimes, which was another way to put distance between him and his victims so that he couldn't be identified or even turn up in a dragnet of suspects. But if I understand it right, he did have some information on his prospective victims. He wasn't just driving the streets crime of opportunity. Is is it correct that he did pick people out some way to to go and victimize them? He had to have, yeah. He there was some sort of extensive stalking that he was doing on some of his victims. Um, he knew their routines, he knew their names, he knew where they worked, uh, where they went to school. Um, if that was a factor, uh, one of the ways he did this was through this, those hang-up calls. He would call neighbors and then hang up just to see when they were home. It's, it's suspected that he did that. Uh, he would look through windows. Um, people would catch the, the mass perpetrator looking through windows sometimes. Um, he would extensively stalk from afar to using whatever information he could get a hold of. Um, we don't know all of his methods. But we do know that he had a lot of information on some of these victims. There was one where he went in and called her by her nickname, which was only spoken in the house. Um, there was one where he knew a victim's particular fetish. So he must have observed her um, uh, through the window or, or something. Uh, it's, there were some victims that he may have stalked up to six months. And there were some that were a bit more opportunistic where he was looking at a geographical area and he thought, all right, well, this person's available on this night and I'm going to hit this house. And there were some cases where it looked like he was going to hit one house and he just went next door. The tracking dog, you know, saw him, saw that, or sniffed that he was all around one house and then just followed his trail over to the house that he ended up attacking. Uh, there were a lot of different methods that he used and that was another way that he kept from being caught is he didn't use the same methods over and over again. It seems like he varied it and he switched it up just like he switched up geography and he switched up masks and clothing and whatnot. Uh, he did everything he could to keep from being identified. And was there a strict victimology? So was there a certain type of, of woman or couple um, age-wise, socioeconomic-wise um, appearance um, that he would target? There didn't seem to be. Um, he attacked victims, I think their ages ranged everywhere from 12 years old up to 41. Um, he did attack people on a little bit higher socioeconomic scale, but that seemed to have more to do with the types of areas he preferred to operate in uh, a little bit further outside of town, a little bit quieter, uh, freshly built a lot of times. Um, it seemed that he would go and scout floor plans of houses that were being built and then would attack the people who would move in there. It seems he did that a couple times. Um, but there was no real way of knowing. One of the, the more famous cases is a victim who was 12 years old and her mother was 56. And uh, the victim thought, there's no way our house is going to get hit. I'm too young. She's too old. And, of course, 
he entered the, the home and attacked them. And um, so there was really no way of knowing. And that was part of the terror that the area was in at the time, because there was no way of knowing if you could be next. And now that he has been caught, allegedly, is there any more thought about this long period of time where he sensibly retired? It'd be a terrible word to, to use, but from from all of this, that he uh, last crime was like mid 80s. And then he goes all the way until 2018 is when he's arrested. Is it uh, the case that in recent years, people report him to just be like that old guy that quietly lives in his house and doesn't bother anybody? Or are there uh, stories of eccentric or otherwise dangerous behavior in the last couple of decades? We hope that he stopped. We really hope that he stopped. Um, there are a couple blanks, at least to me, in the late 80s of where he might have been and what he might have been doing. Um, not a lot of personal anecdotes from that period of time. Uh, around 1990, he became a truck mechanic uh, for a large grocery store cha uh, chain. And his life seemed to be, it's, it's a lot more known and stabilized. There have been neighbors that have said he's weird, uh, he's angry, he curses. Um, he was married throughout the entire uh, Golden State Killer spree. Uh, from 1973 until the divorce that was finalized just this year. Uh, they were separated for, for a couple decades, but um, he and his wife apparently uh, would fight publicly. Um, their, their, their neighbors and friends who have said that. Um, um, there's one neighbor who said that uh, D'Angelo killed his dog, um, the, the neighbor's dog. Um, there aren't a lot of stories coming out of the woodwork like you would think there would be. It, it, it appeared that he tried to, you know, stay on the down low. Uh, it's hard to, it's really hard to say, um, if there were any you know, signs in his personal behavior that mirror anything that, that took place during his crimes. Um, but it, it's his, he's not as weird as you would think. You know, before the arrest, uh, the, the person that you would picture is not exactly a D'Angelo type. Um, he was married all the entire time, uh, three kids, one grandkid, uh, stable job uh, for uh, several decades. Um, it's, it's really uh, disheartening that this was just somebody's neighbor, uh, somebody's co-worker, uh, somebody's father and grandfather. Um there, there weren't so many overt signs and weird incidents um, as you would think. Not, not as many as you would think. Well, you know, it. In, and again, a poor choice of words, maybe. But this guy was so ingenious at how he reinvented himself and moved around. Maybe we still just don't know what he might have been involved in in the last twenty years. I mean, maybe that's the fear because once DNA came out and he knew about it, he could have changed tactics again. And there could be a lot more to this story. Wow. 
Wow. Unreal story. And, and uh, Keith, I have to tell you, you do just a tremendous job of explaining all of this. And uh, we want people to know, too, that the prior two interviews with Keith Comos about the book, Case Files of the Golden State Killer, East Area Rapist, those are also in our archives. But if you want to get the book, there's actually two different books. Can you explain that uh, to our listeners and how they can get in touch with your website and tell them about the two different books for those that want to take this to the next step? Sure. The first book was called Case Files of the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer. It was written before the arrest. Um, me and several partners had compiled a lot of information and uh, figured that this offender could still be alive. Um, it would be great to see him caught while he was still alive and identified and get closure for all these these victims who are many of which are entering the final stages of their lives and just wrap this all up. So we put out as much information out there as we could. The first book is uh, 650 pages, I think. It goes through the case files uh, attack by attack, each one. Um, and then the second one was already in the works when he was identified. Um, it's called uh, Secret Origin of the Golden State Killer, uh, Visalia Ransacker. And it goes through the Visalia cases one by one. And what you can see there is the evolution of what this guy became. Uh, there's little hints uh, of all the different types of crimes he would later commit. And it all ties together. And it also includes the first murder that he's been charged with. So all of that is, is um, available. Uh, the place to keep up with the trial and what's happening now is Golden State Killer Trial dot com. I contribute to that, and that's where you can find all the latest uh, hearings, the next hearing dates, um, how the discovery process is going when we get updates on that, uh, the pre-trial hearings, which have to take place before the trial does, are due to start hopefully next year sometime, and it's going to be a, a more lengthy process and a little bit more involved because the fear is that um, not all the people who need to testify will be available by the time uh, the trial starts. And D'Angelo is wasting away um, in, in jail. So it, there's, they're really trying to get this thing fast-tracked. So there are a lot of uh, big things coming. We hope to see this thing put to bed. So uh, the victims and family involved will hopefully at least feel a little bit better um, that that is behind them. Absolutely. And for those that want to get the book, if you go to Amazon and you just type in Keith Comos, that's K-O-M-O-S, Keith Comos, you'll find um, both of these books. And I just want to make sure that that comes up when I do it here, just to make sure we're giving people the right information, because I did that earlier today. Yeah. So if you just type in Keith Comos, you'll see both books will come up, Secret Origin of the Golden State Killer, and then Case Files of the East Area Rapist, Golden State Killer. And the website, again, to follow the trial is GoldenStateKillerTrial.com. Is that right? That's right. And Keith, do you have anything else uh, in the works? Uh, another case that you plan to embark on, or are you just going to focus on this one for a while? There are a lot of uh, little cases I'm dabbling in, uh, a little bit of television I'm dabbling in, um, helping uh, some shows along, uh, a lot of just behind-the-scenes stuff right now. If there's ever an opportunity 
uh, or a, a need for a case to get some really mega publicity that might push it across the finish line, um, I'll be all for it. But for now, it's a lot of uh, research and passing things along to law enforcement. Very good. Well, you're doing God's work. We really appreciate you being with us. And uh, we'll uh, this will go out tomorrow on about 20 different podcast pl- platforms as well as our YouTube channel. And I'm sure you get several thousand exposures beyond what uh, we had tonight with our listeners. And we encourage people to uh, get copies of these books. You know, folks, there's a, there's a great lesson that you can learn from these in terms of protecting your family. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why we cover these stories. Keith, thanks again for joining us, sir. Thanks. Great to talk to you. God bless. We'll talk to you next time. You know, people have said that to me, Jim, (laughs) you're the Christian finance guy. What are you doing talking about serial killers? And of course, if you go to our YouTube channel, to our iTunes, to our Google Play, uh, to our Stitcher, uh, SoundCloud, all the different places, uh, iHeartRadio, where this show is syndicated, you'll see a lot of uh, discussions, a lot of interviews about serial killers. And it's because I really think there's a lot we can learn about keeping our family safe. I also think it's fascinating when you look and you see the real evil that is in this world. I know some people don't believe in good and evil. And when you see what some of these people are capable of doing, oh, I'll tell you what, it really does uh, make you think twice before taking chances out there in the vicious world that we live in some of these monsters and to just think of your precious family that you want to protect and to just understand what some of these people are capable of and to do everything you can in your power uh, to protect yourself and teach others around you to protect themselves and to be very, very smart and savvy uh, as they are out in this uh, world. All right. We hope you enjoyed this broadcast. Uh, again, asking for iTunes reviews. Please help us out on that. Uh, run over to iTunes, write a little review. It'll take you less than a minute and it will greatly help the show. Remember, if it's Sunday night, it's Jim Paris Live. We'll talk to you next time. So long, everybody.